Astonishing Legends would like to thank ButcherBox, The Great Courses Plus, Quip, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. Here at Astonishing Legends, we sometimes present a story so obscure you've never heard of it. Other times, we'll share one you've heard of, but don't find personally intriguing. And sometimes, when things work out just right, you might get sucked into a story that's a combination of both. Simultaneously obscure and also seemingly mundane, but then that story surprises you with the depths to which it unfolds. There are other kinds of legends, of course, ones that we tackle less often because they're so well-known, legends that have been covered by every other show in every format a thousand times. We tend to stay away from those unless, well, unless we feel we can bring a new perspective to them. Tonight's episode represents the first part of a series with that exact goal in mind. On October 20th of 1967, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were in the Six Rivers National Forest in California. The experienced cowboys and amateur rodeo men were on horseback in the forest's Bluff Creek stream bed when their paths took them past a large pile of trees that had been down in a flood a few years prior. As they emerged around the logjam, they were startled by the sight of a six and a half to seven foot tall, over 500 pound, hairy bipedal creature walking away from them on the other side of the creek bed. Their horses became agitated and Patterson actually fell off of his. But having rodeo experience, he managed to collect a 16 millimeter film camera he had with him as he came down. He yelled for Gimlin to cover him and began running, stumbling at least once before he could steady the camera on a log. He attempted to film the creature the entire time. That creature, which was clearly female, has since become known to the world as Patty. In the ensuing 50 plus years, that film has now been analyzed more than any other film in history, except for the Zapruder film of JFK's assassination. Hundreds of experts from all walks of life have examined it frame by frame, using every form of emerging technology available all to answer one question. What did Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin see that day in 1967? Odds are pretty good you've seen the Patterson-Gimlin film yourself, even if you didn't realize that's what it was called. And maybe you made your mind up the second you finished watching it. Maybe you think it's obviously a hoax and there's nothing more to discuss. Or maybe you can't help but wonder if it's real because you just can't be sure what Patty is. As it turns out, there's a lot more to this story than those 950-odd frames of film would have you believe. Much more. That's where we come in. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. To the young at heart who seldom say impossible, to the adventurer who doesn't stop at the foothills but penetrates deep into the forest, to the individualist who has enough fortitude to stand up for what he thinks is right, to all of those who seek the truth no matter what the cost, Roger Patterson from his book Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist, 1966. Join us tonight for part one of our series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. And we're, and we're back. I can't do a Bigfoot voice. Yeah, I was, no, I don't I know. know. We hear yells. Yeah. 
Don't yell. No, but they're very specific. And some have claimed that they have their own language. Indeed. Remember Albert Ostman? Yes, of course I remember. The family was talking to each other in kind of weird grunting noises. And so so some Bigfoots appear to have their own language. I just don't know what that is or couldn't imitate it. I feel like some members of my family are already (laughs) using it. (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, Well, the bottom line is we keep coming back. That's why Forrest always says, and we're back. Yeah, and we're the thing that wouldn't leave. Yeah, truth is you guys have all the power. All you have to do is stop. Stop listening to us, but so far you haven't. So thank you for that. No, no, thank you so much because without you guys, there is no show. On that note, if you're looking for a better podcast player, we'd like to recommend Himalaya. It's a cross-platform podcast aggregator, and it seriously works better than pretty much everything else out there. Yeah, we've been personally frustrated with the limited functionality and counterintuitive user experiences that you get on pretty much all other players some of which seem to be constantly getting redesigned to deliver a worse and worse experience. (laughs) I'm using Himalaya exclusively now because it's just so much easier. It's easier to subscribe to the shows you love. It's easier to share what you like. And it's way better at making suggestions of new podcasts you might like than other apps seem to be. Yeah, if you don't have it yourself, head on over to your respective app stores and download Himalaya. And that's H-I-M-A-L-A-Y-A. It's free, so there's no reason not to check it out. And after you get it set up, Find Astonishing Legends and give us a follow so we'll know you're out there. Here's the reason I love Himalaya. When I'm checking out our posted versions of the show, I can speed up your long-winded parts. <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you. That's that's very funny. And, and right back at you. <laughs> All right, folks. So uh, grab Himalaya and give us a follow once you get it installed. And now, back to the show. I can't even remember... The first time I saw the Patterson Kimmel film. Oh, oh, so you've seen it. Oh, <laughs> of course. Yeah, have I've you seen it? it? Yeah. When, you make it a re- joke? Yeah, because you can't remember when you first saw it. No, I, it might have been in search of. The thing is, it was two years old when I was born. So oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. Bigfoot and that sort of thing didn't come into my consciousness until I got much older. Yeah. In, in terms of something I'd be fascinated with beyond the scope of anyone else who would be fascinated with that movie. Right. But it really is the consummate representation of Bigfoot. When you think of Bigfoot, when you go to any Bigfoot festival, what you're going to see is Patty from frame 352 you know, of was, that film. Pretty much everything. It's funny. Somebody swinging arms. Somebody sent the, me a bitmoji. Yeah. That is, the joke is believe in yourself. Yes. And you put your bitmoji face in there. But it, it is Patty swinging her arms out yeah. in that pose. It is the most iconic, famous, cryptid Bigfoot photo image out there. And evidence, just in general, of any cryptid anywhere. Nothing comes close to it in terms of its fame. It is the American Gothic of cryptid filmed footage. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's been out there so long. I would say most people interested in this genre have not seen it. I'd be curious to find somebody who hasn't seen it, like the one person who hasn't seen Star Wars yet. (laughs) And I know a few. I Actually, I know one. We have some in our organization. This person works in the film industry, which blows my mind. Yeah. In film marketing, and they've never seen the first original Star Wars. They've seen all the new ones. Well, it was long But they're not ago. interested. Yeah. That's not a tangent. That's actually a point I was trying to make. It's been around so long, and we see all these other cryptid videos and films popping up here and there, and those are digital formats, or they're taken by a cell phone, and you pay attention to those, and it's maybe news for a week, or somebody makes a claim, and it goes away. This thing has never gone away. And I want to make a philosophical point here that I will bookend it at the very end of our series here. It just philosophically for me sums it up is that we've all seen it and most people have seen it and you won't well, go, wow, that's pretty cool. Or you don't know what to think about it. Or you just ignore it like that's a guy in a suit. Come on. What's the big fuss? There are two conclusions I reach with this film. 
And it's weird that I'm giving away. Yeah, you're doing I'm the conclusion. We barely started part one. You're doing <laughs> the conclusions? No, I was worried that people weren't, uh, it's like, oh, who cares? Come on, man. We've all seen this film. What's the big deal? That's well, my point. And I have like, a point you know, to make about that, that there probably are some younger listeners who haven't seen it. I mean, that, I'm, that's for, true. I'm forever going on Reddit and people are like, oh my God, Queen's amazing. I'm like, really? This is the first time you've ever <laughs> well, Queen? That is, oh yeah, that's certain to get <laughs> so old. So there, there are probably some younger folks. By the way, that's if you're true. one of those folks and you're not driving a car or stuck on a subway, stop what you're doing and Google the film so you know what we're talking about. Right. right. Patterson Gimlin, P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N, Gimlin, G-I-M-L-I-N. And find yes. it. It'll pop right up, trust me. Yeah, and watch both versions. There's the old original version of everything that's up there and also one that's been stabilized. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about the stabilization later. Yes, and we have links to some of the stabilized yeah. ones in the show notes. But my philosophical point about this clip here, this short piece of film, if you have seen it and you've kind of forgotten about it, haven't really thought about it lately, but are curious about it, or if you have seen it and just don't care, you think it's a hoax, it's silly, why even discuss it? Hang on a minute, because to me, again, there are two possible conclusions that I personally make about this film. One, if it is a hoax, it remains to this day one of the best filmed hoaxes ever, and especially for the paranormal realm, the paranormal theme. Absolutely. Number two, if it is not a hoax, it's actual footage of a Bigfoot. Unlike you, I'm not going to go to my conclusions right here five minutes into <laughs> the series. That's not all of my conclusions. <laughs> but what I am going to yeah. say is, even though I'd seen it several times, before we started researching it, I had something in my mind about it. Yeah. And it's completely changed now that, oh, we've, really? now that we've dug in. Yeah, now that, that we've drilled that down That is exactly yeah. my point, because we've all seen this film, and you know what I'm saying? It doesn't register what it is. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, and I think I first saw it, and it, it might have been in search of or... You know, there's plenty of shows on there because it was such a popular topic during the 70s as yeah, a whole. Yeah, it was huge, yeah. That was the era, you know, we joke about it a lot. It shows up in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. In another paranormal theme show, <laughs> in another movie, it shows up. And The Six Million Dollar Man and all these other shows of the era make a reference to it. If I'm not mistaken, that was a bionic Bigfoot. In the $6 million No, no, man. I think it was real, but the, we've talked about this before. I think what was funny and maybe a little prescient is that they had a computer system hooked up to Bigfoot so they can communicate with it. Yeah. It could answer simple questions based on vocalizations oh God, that, that was, would it, That was it would also Andre the Giant. No. What? No. Oh, no, no, no. Ted Cassidy. That's uh, who it was, yeah. Oh, who played Bigfoot. No, wait, I was right. He is an alien cyborg. What? Created. See, you don't know. You were like, no, he was a normal Bigfoot. <laughs> I did You see didn't even thing. know what you were talking about. Yeah. He's an alien cyborg created by a group of aliens visiting the Earth, constructed by the alien Shalon, an imitation of a lower form of life from the alien homeworld, using a technology called niosynthetic, an advanced form of bionics. So I told you Bigfoot was bionic. This is the from the six, man. Really? Yeah, I'm reading it right okay, here. It's on so the wiki, on the fandom I, I saw actually half of it on the end, but they were trying to communicate with it uh, right. through the grunts, which I thought like, oh, it's, it's studying vocalization patterns. Indeed. The point being is that it was everywhere around that time. It was such a popular thing, and that did increase a lot of the reported sightings. So we're going to kind of see a history of this where people had reported it prior to this late 60s time here, because people will want to say like, well, this phenomenon of Bigfoot, that didn't really happen until the 70s. You know, that's kind of a modern thing, and it's not. The Bluff Creek area had footprints and people noticing them and taking photos and measurements starting in 1958. But of course, that was happening before then in different areas. There are stories from the 20s. There are stories from the turn of the century. The Native Americans in their respective regions have had stories going back centuries since people have been there. So it's not a new phenomenon, but the reporting of it 
became new with this film. It was the first time somebody got pretty clear footage and motion picture footage, not just a still, not just a blurry photo off in the distance. Somebody got motion picture footage of it, and that blew up. And this is not just, I mean, you're going to look at it because you're used to high definition now. You're used to 4K. You're used to all this high resolution stuff. And you're going to say, oh, this is blurry. It's junky. What? Who cares? And it's not for the time period. It is shot on 16 millimeter film, which is actually a pretty great format to be in the hands of a civilian that's not a filmmaker for yeah, that time period. Yeah. And what the film allows you to do is blow it up and analyze it and take a much, much closer look at it, which is what has happened over the past 50 years or so. And of course, we'll be talking about that. Well, let's talk a little bit about the name. Here in North America, it's generally known, this creature, as Bigfoot because of the big footprints it leaves. In Western Canada, the term Sasquatch is usually more popular, and that comes from the Salishan First Nations tribal language, Halkomelum, of southwestern British Columbia. And its first known wide usage of the term was in 1929, apparently. I think if you look that up. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure I'll... what exact year that came up. And when we were talking about earlier events, there was no evidence with it. But Osman's story that we covered early on in Astonishing Legends, that was 1924, I think. So that's, yeah. again, was significantly predating this. But he didn't get any evidence of it. So Yeah, that's pretty close to the date, if not right on, of the Fred Beck encounter in oh, yes. South western washington state kind of a big year that's my point is that it's not just a 70s phenomenon and again it did not come from creepypasta well the patterson gimlin footage or the pgf as it's often known and abbreviated as the patterson gimlin film was shot on friday october 20th 1967 and it's the first thing that pops up if you go to onthisday.com. Yes, I love to go there. Whenever we're doing, <laughs> I always want to look at that before we start talking about the incident. Yeah, so it was kind of a big deal then, as you'll see. Not immediately, but it quickly ramped up into something big. Well, that film was shot by Roger Patterson with his friend Bob Gimlin nearby, while the two were on a horseback ride in Northern California in Del Norte County near Bluff Creek. I believe it's just probably near the county line of Humboldt County to the south. Okay. Because when you talk about it, like people will say, well, that's coming out of Humboldt County. But if you look at it, I believe technically it is Del Norte, which is right on the border of California and Oregon. This was almost exactly two months before the Silver Bridge collapsed in Point Pleasant, Ohio. These things seem to kind of go in sine waves here. And this was a peak of a lot of activity around this time. So let's talk a little about the technical aspects of the piece of film itself. The film sequence was shot on 16mm motion picture camera film using a Kodak K100 Cine Special lens turret style camera, which means there are three lenses on a plate, and you can turn those depending on what focal length lens you want to use. Usually there's a wide angle, a slight telephoto, and something in the middle that represents more like your regular vision. Yes. You know, in a 35mm camera, it's about 50mm lens. Yeah, and we have some pictures of this camera posted with this episode. There's some of them going on eBay even today for $500. So. Yeah, yeah, it's still not cheap. They're kind of rare now. Well, this camera was expensive back then, so Roger Patterson had to rent it. But it was shot, as you said, on Kodak Color Film, Kodachrome 2, which was a really good color film of the time. And that's going to be... An important aspect because it's used to debunk the film a little bit, the actual type of film it was shot on. Well, this clip lasts 59 and a half seconds if it was shot at 16 frames per second or 53 seconds if it was shot at a more typical 18 frames per second as some believe. 
Every film in this sequence is counted and documented. People have varying opinions about whether the horses look like they're acting funny at different speeds. That's some right. people said it would have normally been shot at 18, but it was such a chaotic moment. There's, yeah. there's some debate over what that frame rate was. Yeah, typically film cameras will let you choose between several different film rates. Nowadays, it, the motion picture film was shot at 24 frames per second for sound capture. Well, this sequence is composed of 954 frames, or 952 originally, as two extra frames were later discovered and thought that should be included with the count. Again, this is, gets really minute, but the reason is, this is like the Zapruder film, because people are trying to match this up, because it is kind of an important question to answer. If this thing is real, what does that mean for us as a species? And if it's not real, let's settle this once and for all and move on. But no one has yet, so that should tell you how well it's done if it was faked. So what this means is that it's 23.85 feet long, with a little over 76 feet of footage shot preceding it while they were just on horseback riding around. And as frame 352, number 352, that is the still frame that is most often seen and recognized as the iconic shot of Patty named after the Patterson film, in mid-stride where their arms swung wide and looking back at the camera. And I'm sure everyone who's familiar with Bigfoot can picture that in their mind right now. Yeah, and that's widely considered the clearest frame that was captured as well. It's just at that perfect moment where she looks back at them and it's captured and Roger has the camera fairly steady at that point. So there's not a lot of camera shake. And also her nickname is Patty because not only from Patterson's last name, because it's believed that the creature is female. Because yeah. it has, as we talked in Albert Oseman's story we did a long time ago, it definitely appears, Patty, to have large, swinging, hairy breasts. Yeah, and the thing about that that was so interesting is I watched it a million times as a kid and growing up, and over the years, I probably came back, oh, look at this. And, that, and I didn't notice that until we did the Oseman story a yeah. few years ago. <laughs> you know, as a kid... That part of it didn't really register. Certainly, I was interested in that genre and what we're talking about right now, but you didn't put it together. Yeah, we all saw it like a hundred times, but... Never noticed that. It didn't, like I said, it did not click. So I think that's why it's worthwhile to take another look at this. And by the way, strap in, kids, because by the time this series is done, you are going to be an expert on Bigfoot boobs. <laughs> that's Well, let's continue on, shall we? Let's, yes. Let's crack on. Crack on. Now, I want to talk about motion picture film here, and I know this feels really kind of funny to have to explain this because we are of a certain age, but there are a lot of younger people who have done work with editing programs, and they've seen video frames, right? So they kind of get the idea. But here's a basic rundown here for those kids out there that might not know how motion picture film works. The motion picture camera is taking a series of single frame still pictures rapidly in sequence at a specific rate, like the aforementioned 18 frames for film shot without sound. 35 millimeter motion picture film, like what you usually saw in the theaters and occasionally still do. Tarantino, of course, famously shot in 70 millimeter because he loves film. Some people do still love film. They love that feeling to it. Well, that's usually shot at the standard 24 frames per second for sound capture. When you project it back at the same rate, your mind puts the frames together and perceives it as continuous motion being visually captured and displayed. Persistence of vision. Exactly. That's the principle that it works on. You're being tricked. Your mind is being tricked that it's a continuous motion and it looks really real. But it's not. Again, it's a series of still frames being shown, which is why every frame in this film has been analyzed. 
The very old silent Hollywood films were shot with cameras that initially required the cinematographer to hand crank the film through the camera, trying to keep it at an even pace. And this is before there were crystal sync camera motors, which is why those old movies, when projected, looked sped up and funny. And I'm talking about the yes. Keystone Cops. That's Keystone why they. Cops. Yeah, there's a guy actually just trying to keep a good rhythm, counting in his head and cranking. You know, the Keystone Cop films, I'm pretty sure they were shot not too far from here where we're recording. That's true. Well, there's the Max Senate Studios, which are close by. Well, to this day, the Patterson-Gimlin film is actually considered the best piece of visual evidence of the cryptid known as Bigfoot or Sasquatch, and one of the best pieces of evidence of any cryptid or paranormal subject. Yeah, you can include ghost or UFO footage in that. Yeah. There's certainly bits of it, but like... Or animals with mange that people say are chupacabras. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> there are bits of that all around, but... None of them have been as lasting, I'd say, as the PGF. Since it became known, it's withstood attempts at debunking, which is why everyone is still talking about it. Now, that's in large part because it was shot on motion picture film and not digitally captured. That's kind of counterintuitive, don't you think? Yeah, well, digital images are easily manipulated nowadays, and with the state of computer programs and movie magic, no one can believe anything they're seeing. But the motion picture film is chemically based. It is what it is. You can blow it up to a high degree and analyze the film grain patterns. You know, Patty was actually a ways away from Patterson and Gimlin, but those images of the film we often see online today, and especially frame number 352, have been enlarged, so she seems closer than she was. Yeah. If there's any criticism of the event being real, it's not that the film itself has been manipulated or altered. That would have to be an optical film printing technique done with a very sophisticated professional machine. The main criticism is that Patty is just a guy in a gorilla costume. Yeah, that's a really important aspect of this because that's what happens nowadays. We love Captain Disillusion on YouTube, and he will break down how to stage these kind of video events now using After Effects, and he's a tremendous whiz at it. I love that guy. Yeah, I, I kind of want to have him on the show. But <laughs> no, it's I very don't know curious. If it's pertinent for us, but you know. Well, it, in all these clips that you see nowadays on YouTube, a lot of this can be faked. Like he shows how to create a vortex and have UFOs get sucked into it or coming out of it. Yeah. And it's very clever how he does that. And but it takes him like three minutes to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> and After Effects, which is one of the yeah. greatest programs of all time. However, to the point that we're making here, it renders everything you see that's digital easily fakeable these days. Yeah, that's why I said this is really interesting case-wise because if it was shot on high-def 4K video and we saw it today, yeah, I mean, the good part about that is that if you did believe it or took it seriously, you could see some really good detail on Patty. And, and I, I think for an anthropologist, a primatologist, that would be exceptional if you believed it or paid it any mind to begin with. But in that case... People would just say, oh, come on, that's just digitally manipulated. You know, even if it's a guy in a suit, he's been enhanced because we see that all the time in movies, especially ones with Dwayne Johnson now. There's a <laughs> yeah. big albino gorilla that he's acting with. It looks pretty good. Right. So it's ironic that this film is shot with movie film with a pretty decent film stock and good daylight conditions. On a nice camera. Pretty decent camera at the time. Yes, and know. we'll be getting to why he had such a nice camera with him. Every little aspect of this, as I said, has been taken apart, scrutinized, tried to have been debunked, and you have to look at all those elements. But one thing that no one really says is altered is the film itself. So that's significant. All right, let's talk a little bit about the timeline of events and where these guys were and how they came across Patty. Can you explain that? Well, that morning, Patterson, Roger Patterson, had slept in at camp while Bob Gimlin was up early riding his horse in the vicinity. And when he came back to camp, Patterson said it would be a good idea for them to both go out on horseback and retrace his path 
to see if they can find anything to film. All right, so this is where we're going to step in. We're going to get into more detail on this in the future, but you have to take this in and don't let it change your whole position mm. on this. They were out there because this was a place where Bigfoot had been sighted. That's true. And they were trying to make a documentary-style film about Bigfoot. Yeah, this was more Roger Patterson's idea. He was very interested in the subject because he'd heard a lot of stories. He'd interviewed a lot of people, actually, just on his own. And he's not a, per se, Bigfoot researcher. You might even call him more of an enthusiast at this point. But we know people like this who get enthused about something and then they want to go film it. And we've had a couple on the show, you know, yeah. who want to go out and actually do a really good job at it. That's right. And make it a career. Very seriously. So this is just a guy who just, you know, back then had an interest in it. I and mean, they didn't certainly have a lot of digital editing equipment or cameras at the well, time. Well, there was but no digital that's what I'm saying. He's, yeah. <laughs> but he could go out and get a 16 millimeter camera, you know, which was pretty good. You could call it prosumer at the time. Most people were shooting regular eight millimeter for home movie stuff and then later super eight film for home stuff. There were a few enthusiasts, amateurs who did have 16 millimeter. Oftentimes those were single lens cameras. They weren't as sophisticated as this one. And by the way, for anybody who's wondering, and uh, we'll bore you to tears with this stuff, but the difference between regular eight and super eight is that regular eight had sprocket holes on both sides of the film. They found out they could get more burnable area on the film by just having the sprocket holes on one side. So Super 8 could give you a larger image on the same yeah. side, 8 millimeter film. Well, and I that's why the same yeah. case with Super 16. I used to know all this stuff because yeah. of course I went to film school, but I believe regular 8 millimeter film is 16 millimeters split in half. Yeah, so you get the one, that's right. But you get, I, but you, I remember yeah, hearing that as well. But you get large sprocket holes. And so that's taken up possible image space on the negative. Sure. Here's a guy that just, he had a little tiny bit of money. He didn't make a, a lot of money. He was a rodeo rider and a professional horseman, and he just loved this subject. He got really fascinated with it, like a lot of people with different paranormal subjects, and they want to go out on their own and see what they can, see what kind of photos they can take and evidence can they gather. And that's basically what he was doing. So he's kind of going out in this area, scoping locations. He wants to see if he can find any tracks because those have been reported for a few years now. And also, it's just a way to get out and go camping and have fun. That's what essentially the trip was about. Just kind of go scout the area, see what they could find, take a lot of scenic stuff. So that was the horseback footage we were talking about when they were riding around. You know, he thought the area was beautiful, and it is. Very lovely wooded area. They're enjoying a camping trip on horseback. And that's the kind of guys these are, just outdoorsmen. This is Mike from Montreal, and while I'm unraveling the intricacies of the human brain, I'm listening to Scott and Forrest on Astonishing Legends. Now, let's get back to the show. So here's a very brief rundown, just in case you were wondering and don't know what we're talking about. And we're going to break this down into a lot of minutiae detail. It is important to the story. So at some point, at a clearing on a sandbar at Bluff Creek, they come to an open stretch. So it's very dense, rocky terrain. They ride their horses around this large overturned stump of a tree because there was a flood a couple years back in 1964. Yeah. yeah, you can look it up because I know it affected, Bob Gimlin mentioned it in some video that we saw on YouTube. The flood was in 64 and uh, he was talking about how it affected Yuba City. And if you look up Yuba City flood 64, you'll see uh, a lot of people were actually killed in the flood. Yeah. And this is way out in the forest. But this is the damage that's left behind after a flood like that. The felled trees and trees that are pushed downstream tend to, when the flood recedes, they settle and they just sit there pretty much forever yeah. or until the next flood. And that's what was still there, even though it was a few years later. After. Right. So this uprooted, overturned tree, the tree trunk with the root system, 
is on its side and it's big. It's about 10 feet tall. As Roger said, I think the size of a room. So as they ride around to the other side of this large root system that's overturned, pretty much at the same time, they both see this hairy ape-like creature, massive, either was crouching or is already kind of in motion. Some reports, they say it stood up as soon as they did. And it starts walking away from them, swinging its arms and that very characteristic gate that's all its own. And I'm going to be careful here because there's a lot of people that have been looking at this. It's it's kind of like Oak Island and these other stories. People have been looking at this stuff for decades. And we're just coming along and covering it now in that way that we do. We're not pretending to be experts on it with decades of experience. So if I misstep, you can send the email. I'm not going to write you back about it. I'm just going to admit that I <laughs> yeah. might have this wrong. But it's my understanding that the felled tree, in a way, was obscuring where Patty was. So it was mm-hmm. almost like a parallax shift where as they got closer, this object was between them that almost perfectly hid her until they kind of popped around it. It just made me now, right now, think of the motion. You ever been driving in your car and there's a pedestrian walking alongside you, maybe in the sidewalk, or they're crossing the street as you're turning or something, and they are blocked by the A-pillar. They're perfectly obscured. And at yeah. the speed they're going, and this can happen with other cars too, the speed they're going or the motorcycle's going right. or the bicycle's going or whatever it is, is perfectly blocked. And then you don't see it to the last second. A lot of yeah. accidents happen that way. Actually. Right, because so. this pedestrian is being blocked by the pillar, which usually, you know, now they're not that thick, but no. that can happen. So back, you got to watch out. Back in the day when I took driver's ed, my instructor, I remember him saying, you know what's behind the A-pillar? And you would go, what? And he would go, a cement truck. <laughs> always, I never forgot that. Yeah, just like, always assume that there's something behind there. Well, yeah. that may have happened with Patty. She might have been moving as they were riding around. So it was a surprise to them and to their horses. Roger's horse rears up and they both go down on the ground. Roger is momentarily pinned, uh, his leg is under his horse, but he manages to get the horse up. Remember, he's an experienced rodeo rider. And he grabs the camera out of his saddlebag and he immediately starts filming as he's running with the movie camera because this thing's kind of walking away. And that's why when you watch the whole clip, it starts off very jerky because he basically got knocked off his horse. Yeah, he's running and there's no steady cam back then. There's no built-in image stabilization. It's right. Some of you may know this, but if you don't, the more you're zoomed in, depending on where the lens is, if you're zoomed in, yeah. the shaking is worse. It's exaggerated exponentially by the distance to whatever you're filming. So he's basically caught off guard. I mean, I think that the most they were hoping to see some tracks because that was fairly common around that area that had been reported for years now, as we said, since 58, there was a big rash of sightings of footprints, but no one had seen Patty. Other people have, but that's pretty rare where they have a in-person encounter or actually see one, but it's happened. So I don't think this was on his radar at all. And certainly not Bob Gimlin, who really didn't start off believing in this. I think he was more doubtful of like, well, I don't know. I really don't know if they exist, but if they do, we agreed not to shoot one. We're just going to take footage of it. So I think he was pretty doubtful they'd seen anything. And remember, these guys have had years and years of experience out in the woods. They're very experienced. So Roger's horse rears up, not exactly bucking. It's not kicking out, but it rears up and they both go down. And he is an experienced rodeo rider. So he knows how to kind of get out of it and how to fall with it. But he's trapped for a little bit. But he gets out of the horse. Of course, the horse gets up, I believe. And at that moment, he doesn't grab the rifle out of the scabbard. He, of course, grabs the camera. So he was able to get around to the other side, grab the movie camera out of the saddlebag, and immediately start shooting. Yeah, it was in the uh, left saddlebag. 
Right. So he hits the ground and he immediately starts filming. That's why the front part of the film is so jerky. And he's running along trying to get, you know, keep pace with Patty. And then at some point he drops to his knees and steadies himself against a log that's on the ground. Very famous log now, because you'll see it in the, in all the photos and the diagrams. There's a good 3D model that's been made of the little scene and where Roger was at that point. Yes. So that's why at that point, the film steadies out because he was able to kind of drop down and she's still walking away from them. I guess you could say diagonally and she's keeping pace. And at some point she quickens her pace and doing that weird swinging gait and flat footed tromping down onto the ground. Not really a heel to toe motion, not very graceful, but she's making her way off into the woods. Now Patterson at this point, because he'd been shooting scenic stuff all day, getting background of the of the woods and the area for the documentary yeah, very... about the search for a bigfoot creature in the area <laughs> yeah, very casually just so our listeners know there is a reason that they were in this area attempting to film something there's something that brought them there so you're going to hear about that in a little bit right yeah. i mean their aim initially was to film any evidence yes. tracks maybe a clump of fur most of the time people see tracks prints in the ground. And that's pretty good because they're unusual. Sometimes people fake them, but you're out in the middle of nowhere here. It'd be very unusual unless you think it was Roger doing it. So Roger had been shooting what we call in the business B-roll, which when you go to see interviews being done or a documentary, you know, you have your interview footage of a person on camera or of the specific piece of evidence or something you want to focus on, but you have to cut away from that. Otherwise everything's a jump cut. So you have pictures of the scenery and again, what they call B-roll, just stuff you can put in so you can make these cuts away from, like I said, if you're shooting an interview and you have to stop, well, the picture will jump if you stop and just start again. Right. Which everyone does now on YouTube. I know. Apparently now it's, it's popular. accepted. Well, yeah. as, as editors, it was anathema to us, but yeah. apparently now that's a stylistic thing. You could just make, make jump cuts from somebody's interview. But if you don't want to do that, you have to cut away to the scenery. Plus, Roger just thought it was beautiful area and he wanted to capture it on film. Unfortunately, not thinking that if something did happen, he's going to need a fresh roll of film. And it's not a cartridge like Super 8 where you can pop it in and it's light protected and all that. This is a reel that, you know, you have to open it up. You got to thread it. In the dark. Well, you should. Yeah, a lot of times there'll be a film bag. They had a poncho. Bob described it as a poncho. Oh, so that they I'm put not... it under? Yeah. So I think yeah. he may have been doing it without sight because you can't see, but... Where you, I don't think they had a film bag. I think maybe they yeah, just film used bag, a, right. a poncho and yeah, put you the camera do, inside the poncho or whatever. You can do that. Generally, as a filmmaker, what you want to do is you want to reduce the amount of direct bright sunlight while you're doing it to try and minimize fogging on the film. That's light coming in to expose the reel before you actually shoot it. These reels, if you've ever seen one, they have a kind of a pancake shape. So it's not an open reel of film. It's flat black to reduce light bouncing into the reel, into the roll of film. But it's probably the size of a softball, these reels of film. And like I said, they're black and to minimize that. So you can kind of do it in dim conditions and it'll, you won't fog the film too much. Yeah. But it's still a process. You have to thread the film through the mechanism, through the gate, spool it up on the other intake, close the lid and turn the latch. And then, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it takes time. So it's a little bit of a process and Roger really wasn't planning for it. Or if you think he hoaxed it, then it's one excuse why he's only got that bit of footage because it walked away before he could load another reel into the camera. So it just happened to time out as Patty is disappearing into the woods. That's when Roger runs out of film. And that's when he called over to Bob, like, Hey, I'm out of film. Stop what you're doing because Bob was going to follow Patty on horseback as much as he could. He just wanted to see another glimpse of her. 
And essentially, that's the end of the encounter. That's it. She walks off into the woods. And it happens to be, I would say as a fair guess, the second most scrutinized piece of film ever, as far as regular motion picture film goes, next to the 8mm Abraham Zapruder film, which captured President John F. Kennedy's assassination as his motorcade passed through Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, on November 22nd, 1963. So within that time frame. Yeah, four years earlier. Yeah, imagine that. In the mid to late 60s, two pieces of film that are still looked at to this day. Before we get into the microanalysis of the film, which everyone else has, so why not us? <laughs> in an audio podcast version of that, to scrutinize as much of the details we can, because this incident, there's really actually two aspects to this piece of film. One, there is the film itself, which has been heavily analyzed. And on another aspect, which is just as important, but really interestingly sociological, it's a human thing, is the analysis of Roger Patterson himself. What kind of a person was he? Would he fit the profile of a hoaxer or more of a stand-up, salt-of-the-earth kind of guy that would never lie? And let's look at his character. That's another angle that people will use to scrutinize this event in itself. So those are the two aspects. So before we get into the incident and describing that, let's take a look at who Roger Patterson was. Well, Roger was born in 1933 in Wall, South Dakota, which, if I've got the right town, is about 75 miles east of Mount Rushmore National Memorial. That'll give you an idea of the region for people who have visited the area. Yes, and it's so funny. I can't, I can't remember who it was. It might have been my dad. No, somebody else went to see Mount Rushmore. <laughs> Maybe it was Tess. I can't remember, but like a year or two ago, and it was cloudy. Like, couldn't see oh. it at all. From, oh, like, that's terrible. Yeah, it's just and, one of those things. And also did not see a Bigfoot. Yeah, also did not see a Bigfoot. All but right. anyway, Roger ended up settling in Yakima, Washington, home of the fantastic Washington apple. That's and right. various <laughs> other famous fruits. Yeah. Patterson's main career was as a rodeo rider, which Bob Gimlin points out in some of the YouTube clips we've watched with Bob. And also, we're actually going to see Bob in a few days. Yep. You'll hear more yep. about that as the series unfolds. But he pointed out that they were amateur rodeo riders, not professionals. But nevertheless, they seem to have a lot of experience with it. Yeah, and, they were experienced horsemen. Yes. But Roger ultimately became obsessed with Bigfoot, and Bigfoot hunting became his passion. I would say obsessed in a good way. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it was a, a, it was a major interest, a lot like a lot of people who get into a paranormal subject and go do ghost hunting on the side or they check out UFOs and, and join MUFON and, and check that out. Yeah. Roger was doing Bigfoot research on his own and Roger became what I would call a Bigfoot enthusiast and amateur researcher before it was really a thing. There were certainly Bigfoot researchers out there. Not a whole lot of them, not like there is now, but certainly some people were taking it seriously who had scientific backgrounds. And there were some, I, I guess you would call them prosumer or pro-am researchers who did not have fancy degrees, but they collected a lot of evidence and interviews. And Roger was on his path to being one. Well, he became fascinated and inspired by the work of famed Scottish-born biologist and cryptozoologist Ivan Terence Sanderson. Sanderson lived from uh, 1911 to 1973, and he had written a book published in 1961 called Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life. 
But Patterson may have first heard about Bigfoot from Sanderson's article about it, which had been published in True Magazine in 1959. Now, you guys have heard us talk about Ivan T. Sanderson before. He was actually close friends with John Keel, just so everybody knows. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, cryptozoologists, have known him, including Lauren Coleman, who's another famous cryptozoologist who we follow on Twitter and have had some exchanges with. You guys should check him out if you haven't already. But uh, Sanderson's book, Abominable Snowmen, had accounts of sightings and evidence of these cryptoprimate creatures from around the world, but specifically accounts of footprints found and sightings in the Bluff Creek area, which particularly interested Patterson because it was a place he could actually get to. Yeah, these weren't stories from the Himalayas or Indonesia. This was something in his backyard that he could go visit. So that's why he was really excited about it. Plus, there were a lot of sightings from the Bluff Creek area from not that long ago, just a few years. And here's the other fascinating thing about Ivan T. Sanderson. He is actually the guy that is said to have coined the term cryptozoology in the early 40s and first used it in print in this book. Yeah. And the educator and Western-themed author, Marion Templeton Place, notes that Patterson went to Bluff Creek in 1962 to talk to people who claimed they witnessed Bigfoot evidence and actually met quite a few who believed in it. Then, in either 1963 or 1964, Patterson went back to the area and met a lumberjack named Pat Graves, who took him to Laird Meadows, about 12 miles north of Bluff Creek, where Patterson saw fresh Bigfoot prints. That locked him in. Uh, Yeah. The date is in question because, according to Bigfoot researcher Cliff Barrickman, the date that was carved into the plaster cast of the footprints as they were drawing is October 21st, 1963. I don't know why, but I just noticed this. October 21st, 63. This event happened October 20th, 67. Yes. Pretty close to the date. Maybe that's why he went back at this time. So the idea here is that he had been to the area before. He had seen real prints, as far as he knew, and that really got him jazzed and locked into this idea that maybe if he came back to this area around that same time, maybe he'd actually see something or at least get fresh tracks for himself on camera. So you can see these pictures of the cast footprints made by Pat Graves and Roger Patterson on his site Cliff, C-L-I-F-F, Barrickman, B-A-R-A-C-K-M-A-N.com. It's pretty cool to actually see those. Yeah. He actually has the castings. It's awesome. So Patterson would return each year and the year after that and the year after that and never had any sightings. And he'd spent a lot of his own money and time researching and was running out of funds. He'd established the Northwest Research Foundation and gained interest and funding out of this, but his expeditions kept draining his resources, as you can imagine. It costs money to go out just traveling, you know, gas money and lodging and all that. It's expensive, and he wasn't making a whole lot of money. Now, people will say, well, there you go. It's a motivation to make a a million dollars off of this thing. So we don't know, but this constant ridicule and drain of money without much to show for it has some people speculating that, like, with a lot of people in the cryptozoology and paranormal fields, the financial burden and frustration with not getting results leads them to create these hoaxes to keep up interest and backing. But to create a well-crafted hoax also takes funds and expertise and time and planning. And in this case, you need cohorts, people who are in on the hoax. And as you always say, the more people you invite into a conspiracy or hoax, the more likely it's going to get found out. In 1966, year before the Patterson-Gimlin film was shot, Roger Patterson had written and self-published his own book titled, and get ready for the nod to Ivan T. Sanderson, Mm. Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist? 
Now, the book, which I just got, seems to be mostly a collection of newspaper articles collected by Patterson with his written sensational comments interspersed, but it also includes a lot of original material, including never-before-seen letters and interviews, illustrations of the encounters and maps drawn by Patterson. Yeah, he's a pretty good sketch artist. Yeah, he's fairly decent. Creative (laughs) guy. Yeah. And photos and artwork from various sources. The book was reprinted by Chris Murphy in 1996 and then reissued by him under the title The Bigfoot Film Controversy in 2005, and Chris Murphy added another 81 pages. Yeah, I got to say, well, one, this book we follow very closely, especially the description of the incident itself and the timeline, because I, I tend to trust it. He knows these people that were there. Chris Murphy was around to talk to them all the names that were involved. Yeah, he's not an outsider looking in. He was part of that small insular group. He knows these people, so I trust that he got the information as best as they could remember what happened when, and he boils it down to a very concise timeline of events, and we use that plus some other sources to match up actually what happened. But aside from that, this book is a lot of fun. I just had to say, I wish I'd discovered it when I was a kid. It's just one of those fun books where it's some newspaper articles, you know, people knock them for that. It's like, well, you didn't write any, you know, original material. You're just collecting newspaper articles of sightings. But my point is, would you rather trust those than, you know, him making up some prose about it? Go ahead and show me the newspaper articles that you collected about this. He's like one of those guys that's a Charles Fort. He's just collecting all these things that interest him and and he compiled them. And he did get a lot of original interviews. Some of these are reprinted in the book or retellings of the stories. So that's a fun earlier portion of the book. And he actually has some hand-drawn maps, which nobody usually does. Yeah. And like I said, he's not a bad sketch artist, so it's a lot of fun. But ironically, Patterson's original book does not include any account of the encounter because it happened before the book was published. I'm sure he would have loved, like, man, if I just waited, I could have included that as a great whole chapter in the book and probably would have doubled its length having his own sighting. Not only that, capturing it on film, which no one really had done before. But the great thing that Christopher Murphy did, Chris Murphy, is he's known, uh, as you'll see in the research, is add these 81 pages of a good detailed account, plus photos that you don't usually see. And it was a great addendum to this really fun book. So I recommend picking up that book, or checking it out if you're really interested. And it does have the bent that this film is real. Here's the thing, though, about it being, I mean, I wonder how many people have bought that book Mm -hmm. And then wondered why he didn't mention the film in it, because they didn't pay attention to the timeline or they didn't really understand. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to get a Bigfoot book. And they're like, what, this Roger Patterson, how come they're not mentioning it? (laughs) And it's because it was before. But on the other hand, to your point about, oh, if he'd only waited or had written it a year later, he could have put this huge section in there. It would have been amazing about the movie. That's true. But you know what I would submit based on what we've seen? In hindsight, with regard to the reaction to the Patterson-Gimlin film, Mm -hmm. if he was in the process of writing a book and then he had captured that film, people would put even more doubt into whether or not the film was accurate because they would say he was just trying to sell his book. Absolutely right. That is something to consider. And I don't think he would have thought of that, but we know how these things play out. Like, oh, it timed out perfectly that you then you just happen to discover an actual Bigfoot and get film of it. You made this all up. Yeah. Well, they no matter anyway. how good the film is. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the point. So. Well, there is the other angle of examining this case, of course, and that is the skeptical one, which we have nothing against. You should look at the skeptically. But there is a way to do that that you'll see in the literature. Like, according to Greg Long's book, The Making of Bigfoot, The Inside Story, 
that takes a critical view of Patterson himself. Because after writing his own book, Patterson then wanted to film a docudrama starting around May through June of 1967 about a hunt for Bigfoot. And the setup to the story was that some cowboys on horseback were being led by an old miner and an experienced Indian tracker. That's the words in the book, of course, of that time. And the Indian tracker would be played by Bob Gimlin in a wig on their quest. Now, I know you might say that's silly, but Bob is one quarter Apache and pretty good at tracking. He was a avid hunter. Outstanding at tracking. We'll go into more depth on that. But when you, if you watch any of the videos on YouTube with him talking, it's real clear that he is an expert tracker. An experienced outdoorsman and horseman, as we said, the guy you want out there and has a lot of wisdom about the outdoors. But this film especially, it would be called a docudrama, not so much a mockumentary, or as you'll see in the tone of some literature that is critical of this, a pseudo-documentary, because when you stick the word pseudo on there, that puts that in your mind. Documentaries have been being made this way since the dawn of documentaries. In fact, even if you go back to, and I've mentioned it on the show before, one of the first documentaries of all time, Nanook of the North by Robert Mm -hmm. Flaherty. Flaherty faked everything that Nanook did. So (laughs) Nanook, sorry. Yeah, Nanook, excuse me. And then the whole fire burned up and he went back and shot it again and staged everything. (laughs) So just a thing about docudramas and, you know, pseudo, if if people are coming along and saying, oh, Roger is making it. He didn't invent that. That's how a lot of documentaries have been made over the years. Yeah, to be clear, he was not going to include footage, at least on the outset, or you could say at this point, to fake a Bigfoot encounter and claim that that's part of the documentary. The story idea behind it was that there were these cowboys on a Bigfoot hunt. And, well, it's pretty interesting the way he was going to tackle this creatively, how the story would unfold, and that during their journey on this Bigfoot hunt, the group would reminisce around the fire, I suppose, about these famous Bigfoot stories in the area as, you know, while they're on their own hunt. So told in flashback, they would reminisce about these famous cases. Was that his plan? Yeah, that was going to be the setup of the film, you know what I'm saying? So... So that makes sense. So the the Bluff Creek becomes this place where there's been all these sightings becomes the backdrop for these cowboys. For these real stories. Yeah, who are on a hunt and they're probably not going to find anything, but they can talk about all the stories and do it like in the area that a lot of sightings have happened. It's a narrative style. You know what I'm saying? Think about all these cable shows where they, you know, killing Bigfoot or they go look for something in, in Egypt near the Sphinx. And it's like, they're not going to find it. You know, Josh Gates does not find Atlantis. But that no shouldn't offense, stop. Josh. <laughs> Love but, your show. Yeah, no. <laughs> my, my point is that nobody does. But yeah, you shouldn't we're not stop finding it either. <laughs> yeah, you, you need to go on these quests. We should still be looking, even though it's unlikely because it would blow up. That oh my gosh, this show really did capture something. Yeah, that's an ancient mystery. Hey, we do know it. where the best fear is. We can say that. That is true. We'll <laughs> never say though. Well, that's the idea of the film, and. Actually, Roger Patterson had a lot of firsthand experience with some of these stories and the tellers of these stories. I believe Albert Ostman, he may have interviewed or got the story firsthand from him because I believe he would have been alive at this point. Yeah, he was because I've seen him on film on Mm -hmm. the Internet as he was an old man. And also I want to explain for listeners who are new to the show or not familiar with our back catalog. The very first Bigfoot show we ever did was kind of a comical coverage of what happened to Albert Osman. So look for an episode in our archives called Kidnapped by Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. If you want to uh, get the backstory there, we actually mentioned Patterson Gimlin in that, but we didn't come back to it till all these years later. So there you go. Well, if you're from the region of southwestern Washington state, 
you may be familiar with the Ape Canyon Bigfoot attack story, but I realized later, like, I'd heard the name, but I didn't really know much about it. And certainly there's a lot of people around the country and the world who may not know anything about it. I had never heard of it. Have you not? No. Oh. It was news to me, and I love it. It's a great story. Yeah, you story. were <laughs> Yeah. I was going to retell it like you hadn't heard it before, but you, you just read it. No, there's a lot of elements in it which make it exciting, which I thought might be a fun thing here. Yeah. So here's the brief rundown of the Ape Canyon Bigfoot attack incident that happened in 1924 in a canyon gorge that's named for the event. And this was reported in the Oregonian newspaper dated July 16th, 1924. And this location is on the southeast slope of Mount St. Helens in Washington State, in an area called the Plains of Abraham. And there's also a geological feature called Ape Cave on the south side of the mountain, because it's believed they take up residence there as well. The story is that a group of miners working in the area had possibly shot and killed an ape-like creature, which then later prompted an attack by a group of the ape men, where they rained down stones onto their cabin and tried to break in. Fred Beck was one of the miners involved in the attack and detailed the event in a booklet he wrote in 1967. Interestingly, in the booklet titled I Fought the Eight Men of Mount St. Helens by Fred Beck, Everett Davenport, who did the illustrations, and Ronald A. Beck, Fred Beck claimed to have had psychic premonitions his whole life and that due to this, he had a sense these ape men were creatures from another dimension, which is a current theory about Bigfoots that that is the reason they seem to appear, then disappear, leaving not much evidence like scattered bodily remains, except for footprints. Also somehow connected to other paranormal phenomena like UFOs, sometimes being seen in the areas in conjunction with Bigfoot sightings. In 1966, Roger Patterson interviewed Fred Beck, and elements of it ended up in his book, Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist? Hi, I'm Danny, and when I'm not obediently following Tess Feifel's commands when they come out of my headphones, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. There's also the strange case of a skier named Jim Carter who was photographing a 20-member climbing expedition when he mysteriously disappeared. They searched for him and found only his skiing tracks and an empty film roll box. And it appeared to them that he was being chased as he had skied straight down the slopes of the canyon. Yeah, that one is very mysterious and baffling. And the conclusion by some of the learned members of the party was that the eight men got him. And yeah. they're, they're not joking. It was very obvious that he had taken all these risks that a skier under normal conditions shouldn't have. Like he was going straight down the canyon slopes and jumped several crevasses. It's, it was crazy. Yeah, it's the kind of thing is best left to Roger Moore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. In a British-themed uh, parachute. Indeed. Yeah. Well, by now, Patterson had heard a lot of the stories that had footprints to go with it, and he'd heard the creature himself knocking and yells while he was out in a cabin with a, with a partner out there. Patterson and his Bigfoot buddy Prentice Beck had heard from witnesses in their travels and visited guys like Ray Wallace in Toledo, Washington, just west of Mount St. Helens, who was knowledgeable about the Bluff Creek Bigfoot activity since 1958 and had a recording of a Bigfoot yell. Patterson said it wasn't a yell like what they'd heard, but that Wallace was convinced it was the same type of creatures that he had known in both the Mount St. Helens and Northern California area, Bluff Creek especially. They seemed to be both Bigfoot hotspots, but 
was Ray Wallace telling the truth about his Sasquatch experiences. We're going to talk about that. And as much as Wallace appeared to be quite eager to share his Bigfoot stories for some reason, people Patterson met while visiting towns like Cougar, Washington, would laugh at his questions at first, then open up about hearing stories and tell of their own experiences. So Patterson was interested in the massive lava tube caves of Mount St. Helens, which cemented plans for him to tour Northern California that summer. So that, that's an f- interesting sociological aspect right there that Patterson describes, is that they went into this cafe and, you know, they, everybody made jokes, like the waitress. <laughs> the joke was that, you ever seen any ape men around here, big hairy ape men? And the waitress said, yeah, he owns the gas station across the street. <laughs> and, and everybody laughed. And then they saw that they were serious, that they weren't there to, like, make fun of people. They were genuinely curious. And then people started to open up, something that we've noticed with this show. Yeah, the other thing that I would like to say is that I can relate to this interest. I mean, this is the kind of interest that got us to want to start doing the show. Yeah. It's being fascinated with something, you know, discovering something and then going on this hunt for it. And that's what leads a lot of people to a lot of the mysteries that we explore on the show. There are always people who have been interested in X, Y, or Z, the disappearance of Amelia Earhart, Mm -hmm. the the Patterson-Gimlin film, the... And we can relate to all of that. That's why we're doing the podcast. And I say this in defense of Roger Patterson, because Mm -hmm. I guess my point is his character has been called into question by many, many people in not very nice ways, because they're saying that the nature of what he was looking for makes him an untrustworthy man. Right, that he would do that in the first place or have that idea. And if you can't go after the evidence, you go after the person who got the evidence. And all we see here to start that we know is that he had some experiences like hearing the yell and seeing the fresh prince, you know, it's fresh prince, the fresh prince, yeah. of not, not Will, no, he did not see Will, <laughs> but the footprints that, that got him excited. And you can see this buildup of genuine curiosity and excitement. And he had time to go check it out. So that's why he wanted to produce a documentary on Bigfoot also as a follow-up to this book that he'd written. And he thought that Northern California, the Bluff Creek area would be a good place to camp and see if they could find some evidence. Indeed. Let's talk about Bob Gimlin. Uh, He's a really fascinating guy. I've been hearing his name for years, just like anyone else who's been exposed to this film, but I never really went to seek out what he was like. And you can find him all over YouTube because he's spoken a lot over the years, although he did disappear for a while. Well, he didn't want to speak about it for many years following the incident because, of course, he got a lot of flack and ridicule and, and just pestered. So it hasn't been until recently that he's decided he needs to set the record straight, at least with his observations and being a part of that story. But of course, most of the focus goes on to Roger Patterson. Bob will be the first one to tell you it ruined his life for a while. And there was more publicity than he had ever hoped to get. There wasn't a lot of financial gain. And at one point, his wife even asked him to stop talking about it. Mm. So it was wrecking his marriage. It was wrecking everything. And so when people look back and they think, well, this is all a hoax, who would put up with that for a hoax? That's just something to think about. Why would you risk everything you have, Mm. your own personal sanity, your marriage, everything, to perpetuate a myth like this for 50 years. Well, people who have done hoaxes that they later admitted to or got found out, which were genuine hoaxes, it's the attention, it's the notoriety of putting over something big on somebody. You had intentions to try and hoax something, I think, with a Chinese lantern or something a long time oh, ago. Oh, <laughs> well, that wasn't a hoax. That was just right. a, You just lit one and let it go, and then- No, it wasn't run. a Chinese lantern. Oh, it was a kite. We put a diving light on it, which is a little, very bright red LED. Right. But very small and very lightweight that divers would use to track each other. Yeah. 
And we put it on the kite at the beach down in North Carolina. And sure enough, the police department got tons of calls. Oh, did they? <laughs> yeah. Well, the way we found different. this out was yeah. two guys came up to me and my buddy on the beach. Yeah. Plainclothed, but armed policemen. Oh, yeah. And they were laughing. I, yeah. I, it was almost like a scene from a movie where the one gives the other one a $5 bill because they had made a bet about right. what this thing was that they had gotten so many calls. I was Car oh, Carolina I Beach, North Carolina. I see. So to people, it looked like a stationary flashing red light just over the ocean off the coast that was not going anywhere or making any noise. I see. Well, that's so, a bit of fun. Certainly. Yeah, we it were just, yeah, we were. The bigger ones you got to wonder about. Now, people from time to time ask us about the John Titor yeah. story and aren't all of his predictions coming true and isn't that kind of a prescient and what's going on there? Well, there is a gentleman named Joseph Matheny, who was involved in Ong's Hat, I think another kind of pseudo-interactive game hoax kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. There's a story behind that. He claims to have hoaxed the whole John Tidor story, him and three others. Yeah. And he makes a compelling claim, because there are a lot of people, you'll notice, that will admit to a hoax with no proof. That's true. Which is a weird offshoot kind of a thing, with those making incredible claims that have no connection to them. And it's just a strange thing. It's like, no, I did it. It's like, well, can you prove it? Like, well, no, I'm just admitting it. And you'll it's see a, a lot of people. Confession. Yeah, you'll see a lot of people just go be satisfied with that. Like, well, there you go. That guy said he did it. Well, I think we have to think about that as this story moves forward. And we think about all the people who claim to have been involved in a hoax, whether or not they actually were. So right. it's, it's something to consider. Well, let's come back around to Bob Gimlin and a little bit of his history. Bob and Roger actually met up in 1966, I think. And Roger realized it would probably be really helpful to take someone along who was skilled in tracking. And he knew that Bob was an experienced hunter and tracker and was a quarter Apache. Now, Bob said he'd be delighted to help try and track Bigfoot. On September 23rd, they left with their horses and gear in a truck and decided to go on one of Patterson's pre-expeditions, which this time was to leave Yakima and head to Ape Canyon, starting at the bottom and going up. Quote, there were several more trips such as this that were rewarding in information, but were not too fruitful in sightings or tracks. However, they bring us closer to that one expedition we eagerly anticipate, end quote. Yeah, the scouting expedition, you could say. Indeed. This is not something we were aware of until we started watching these videos with Bob online. And as I said, in a few days, we're actually going to see him. That's something we talked about in our last episode of the show. We're actually going up to see him speak in Fresno on April 6th as a guest of the Paranormal Central and its host, Jeffrey Gonzalez. But one of the things that I had found, or, or Forrest and I both found as we looked into Bob, was that Bob and Roger were pretty good friends when they were younger. It's just like anybody you know when you're growing up. And they they fell in and out with each other. Communication-wise. Yeah, communication-wise, yeah. as they lived their lives and grew up in mm -hmm. kind of the same region. But they were both cowboys, experienced cowboys. They both were involved in rodeoing, as Bob would say. And they had different skill sets. I mean, Bob himself said that Roger was never so great at breaking a horse, but that he could ride him and that he was good. And Bob's skill sets, as we just mentioned, were tracking and understanding how to break horses and all that kind of stuff you need to be real good at if you're a cowboy. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the two of them setting out on this expedition, even though they were in their early 30s, think about a couple of guys who grew up together. They were acquaintances. They were friends. They did things together. They knew each other. 
each other. So this wasn't just a couple of strangers. I think about friends that I would have done this kind of thing with back in the day, people that I talked into doing things, like my friend that I stood on the beach with and flew a kite with a light on it and mm. lit up the switchboard at the local police department. So there's these folks in your life. So I guess what I'm, I'm trying to put that out there because I want you to have some perspective on the nature of their relationship. These mm -hmm. are a couple of friends out trying to help each other out and also get something on film and get something interesting. Well, it sounds like fun. I think in Bob Gimlin's case, as he was quoted as saying, is that he wasn't sure if they existed. It's not something a lot of people just think about, and he'd never seen Bigfoot or any evidence, I believe, himself. Certainly seen a lot of big game, you know, bear and, and I'm sure a deer and elk and all that, and hunted for him. But he thought, I think, it would be a fun adventure, a chance to go out in the woods and camp and kind of have fun and, you know, lend his expertise in tracking to Roger's project and go on a fun little adventure here. Okay, so far we've told you a little bit about what happened, and we've introduced you to Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin and some of the other players. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to drill down on the events that unfolded that day in October of 1967. A moment-by-moment -moment analysis of the detail. But I want to make a note here about this section before we started. Now, we're going to go and be as specific as we can about the timeline of actions surrounding the encounter with close attention paid to times of day and what happened when, closely following the breakdown that appears in the book The Bigfoot Film Controversy by Christopher Chris Murphy. Now, the reason for listing all the dates and times which we realize you may not care about or think is important, is that this timeline of events is one of the key factors in the skeptical argument against Patterson and Gimlin's claim, that mainly they couldn't have done all this stuff that they said they did and traveled all those distances in the time span from first seeing and filming the creature to the first screening of the film, and therefore it's got to be a pre-planned hoax. Now, proponents of the film and the encounter say it's possible, and just as a reminder, this book's timeline that we're going to follow closely here, uh, The Bigfoot Film Controversy, contains Roger Patterson's complete self-published book, Do Abominable Snowmen of America Really Exist? But this book has an updated addendum from Murphy specifically about the PGF, the Patterson-Gimlin film, as we'll call it. So we might abbreviate that too. Patterson himself doesn't talk about his film in his own book because, of course, the book came out before The Encounter. Just so you know, like, why isn't he covering this? Why is Chris Murphy doing it? That's the reason. All right, now, on to the most famous Bigfoot encounter in history, I think. If you know of a bigger one, please let us know. Sometime in early 1967, Roger Patterson decided that he wanted to make a documentary about Bigfoot with a 16-millimeter camera that he had rented, and he wanted to film some fresh Bigfoot tracks as proof that Bigfoot existed. Now, when Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were away on their Mount St. Helens pre-expedition in late August and early September of 1967, Roger's wife, Patricia Patterson, I guess also a yeah, patty. She's also a patty it. Patterson, yeah. yeah. She got word of a discovery of a series of large human-like footprints in the Bluff Creek area from a man named Al Hodgson, who ran a five-and-dime store called the Willow Creek Variety Store. Patricia Patterson... Patty Patty. <laughs> ...told yeah. her husband, Roger, about these tracks once he got home from the Mount St. Helens trip. Yeah, this discovery that his wife told him about occurred around August 28th and in the days following, when the Bluff Creek footprints were being investigated by Canadian Sasquatch researchers John Green, a journalist, and noted Bigfoot investigator Renee Donden. 
Now, these specific footprints were found on the Blue Creek Mountain Road in the Bluff Creek area. John Green had asked the British Columbia Provincial Museum to send down someone to look at the tracks in person, so they sent archaeologist Don Abbott. Now, although the road construction foreman held up the work so that the prints could be investigated, unfortunately, by the time Abbott got there, the prints had been destroyed because the foreman thought that they were done with their investigation. Why does that always happen? (laughs) Everybody's always destroying. I know. Well, just imagine if if nothing was destroyed. Yes. Yes. Well, that's the point I was going to make is that he was trying to comply and be, you know, rather than like, screw you, we're going to continue on with this road building. He's like, okay, we'll hold up. He just thought they were done. Yeah. And so they continued. Look, he's got a timetable to keep, too. So that happens. But a lot of times up in this area, though, keep in mind, it's a lot of loggers, forestry people, and road builders, road construction crews who see these things because they're the ones who are first out in the middle of nowhere putting in roads and and power lines and managing the uh, timber there. To that end, you know there's a conspiratorial story that suggests that logging companies did indeed know that there were Bigfoots in the area oh, and actually yeah. rounded them up and killed them so that they would not have to stop logging. Are you kidding me? Not kidding. <laughs> That's But more on horrible. that later. Can you imagine, like, going to the grave with that story? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had to shoot a family of Bigfoots. I felt bad. But we were on schedule. Well, as we mentioned earlier, this same area had seen a lot of Bigfoot activity in 1958, nine years earlier. And at that time, as what we're just talking about here, a road construction worker named Jerry Crew had found enormous human-looking footprints. It was because of the resulting press release on this finding that the term Bigfoot became the common term for this beast in the United States. There you go. Isn't that interesting? Origins. (laughs) Origins. Well, after hearing about this Blue Creek Mountain Road finding, Patterson contacts Gimlin, and they decide to go investigate. And they took Bob Gimlin's truck, along with three horses and supplies, and left on or around October 1st, 1967. They arrived and set up camp at Laos Camp. That's not the most appealing name no, definitely for a not. campsite. <laughs> at least it's telling you what you're going to end up with. Well, this is at the confluence of Notice Creek and Bluff Creek. And this stretch of Bluff Creek, which is a tributary of the Klamath River, is about 25 miles west, northwest, or maybe 10 miles directly of the town of Orleans, California, in Del Norte County, in the Six Rivers National Forest. So as we said at the beginning, it's right above Humboldt County, technically in Del Norte County. And the actual spot where the film was shot is about 38 miles south of Oregon, and 18 miles to the west is the Pacific Ocean. And the actual site of the sighting was lost for many years because of vegetation overgrowth after the flood of 1964, but was rediscovered in 2011. You remember that? Oh, yes. Yeah. And there's some really great clips looking at that and analyzing that. And we have links to that posted with this episode. Fantastic. Each day that they were there, Patterson and Gimlin went out on horseback exploring the terrain. Now, Patterson thought the landscape was beautiful, so he actually shot the first 76 feet, or 23 meters, of his first 16-millimeter, 100-foot roll of film just to the scenery. This is sometimes referred to as the beginning horseback footage. Yeah, you'll hear that term basically when people say it's the horseback footage. This is all the footage he took before actually seeing Patty. That's right. Now, at night, they drove the logging roads, hoping to get a night sighting of a Bigfoot. On the morning of Friday, October 20th, 1967, Bob Gimlin woke up early, and he went for a ride by himself while Patterson slept in. 
And when Gimlin came back to camp at around 10 a.m., Patterson wasn't there, but returned a little bit later. So basically they got, it's just like anytime mm. you go camping, people wake up at different times, go do things, look well, around, come probably, back. Maybe, yeah, who knows, off in the woods relieving himself. But the idea here is that, oh, where did he go? Yeah. Was he out staging something? So Roger asked Gimlin where he'd gone, and Bob told him what area he'd been riding around in. And Roger suggested they go back and check out an area they had previously explored. Gimlin agreed, and they both left camp on horseback around noon. Now, later that day, around 1.30 in the afternoon, or between 1.15 and 1.40, Patterson and Gimlin were riding in a northeast direction upstream on Bluff Creek along the east bank. At a turn in the creek, they came to an uprooted tree that had a large root system almost 10 feet tall. We talked about this earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, once they rode around it, there was a log jam, or what's called a crow's nest, that had piled up on a sandbar from the flood in 1964, just three years earlier. Now, as soon as they came around that, that's when they saw a female Bigfoot about 50 feet or 15 meters away. Now, Patterson estimated the creature's height to be between six and seven feet tall, or two to 2.1 meters, maybe a little bit taller, and weighing between 350 and 400 pounds, or 158 to 181 kilograms. He later raised his estimate to about seven and a half feet tall. Now, some analysts, like famed anthropologist and Bigfoot proponent Grover Krantz, thought this later estimate was a foot too tall. Unlike Roger, Bob actually estimated the creature to be about six feet even. Yeah, so Bob thought he was a little shorter, but the fact that Roger upped his estimate later on is a point that critics will seize upon to criticize Patterson's stories. Like, oh, well, what, you got that wrong? Now it's even bigger. It's like the fish he caught. It was yeah. this big. It was even bigger, you know. So they're seeing it as a big fish story or there's no fish at all. But Yeah, but to me, that's ludicrous. We can talk about that yeah, later. Right, we will, like, we will talk about it oh, later. Oh, you didn't but... get the height exactly right <laughs> when you estimated in this shocking moment from 50 yards away how tall this thing was that you'd never seen before? Well, that... Your whole story's wrong. <laughs> it's like, are you kidding no, me? No, I know, but that is one of the arguments yeah. that uh, I think Greg Long makes is that normally in any, any other story, it wouldn't be a big deal. But in this extraordinary story, it should be looked at. It's significant. And, you know, sure, let's scrutinize all the sightings and, and the details. That's what I'm saying. Humans that, that's are notorious for stinking at estimating know, height or something. Uh, yeah, just actually, for the record. No, and actually what I would say, we talked about this earlier, is that both of these guys, I would be pretty trusting of their estimate of weight because they are used to dealing with very large animals. That's true. Horses and cattle. So they could the see the mass. The bulk of an animal. Yeah, they can yeah, see the mass exactly. and like, yeah, it's, you know, it's like Bob says, his horse was around 1,200 pounds. Yeah. You know, these guys know the relative weight depending on, on bulk and mass. But anyway, speaking of horses, Patterson's horse immediately got spooked seeing the creature and reared up, causing both horse and rider to fall to the ground, as we said. What we didn't tell you is that Patterson was momentarily pinned underneath. What had happened is that the whole stirrup bent around his foot yeah. on the bottom side. And he, he was, was stuck to the saddle. Yeah, so. for just a moment. And yeah. he was able to wriggle his way out. Like I said, this he was pretty used to it. But his foot was really hurting, he said. Mm -hmm. So he, he scooted out and he managed to grab the camera out of the saddlebag. Didn't think at that moment to grab the gun, the rifle out of the scabbard. I think because what Bob said is that she was walking away from them. 
Yeah, they knew that might have been different. This was it was <laughs> yeah. now or never for the camera. Yeah, no. If had she been walking towards them, that might have changed a little. Yeah, the gun might have become first. a priority. <laughs> or, or Bob, you grab the gun and I'll shoot. Uh, you know, us getting torn apart. Yeah. But I think they didn't feel scared. They were just very excited. That's why, like, yeah, measurements and initial sightings might be off. It was crazy. Gimlin himself saying later that he was in a mild state of shock upon first seeing the creature, as were the horses. Also, Gimlin's horse and the pack horse he was leading also got spooked. Bob's horse was said to be a little older. It shouldn't have spooked. It was trail-worthy, trail-wise. But the pack horse, I think, was smaller. So it spooked and ran off, and he couldn't hold both. So it's kind of rearing up. At some point, he has to let it go to steady his own horse. So that's kind of what's happening. These horses are, are going nuts. Patterson's horse, I think, gets up and runs off. And either the pack horse, I think, follows it, or they join up. Horses will do that, you know, just kind of take off together. Patterson, again, so he was an experienced rodeo rider. So, you know, that kind of helped and was remarkable that he had that composure to ride himself, grab the camera, immediately start shooting as he's running. But as you'll see in the original film, that's why, again, it's very shaky until he can steady himself. So he was shooting film continuously. He ran and he stumbled, I think, getting across the river. He had to cross the creek there. It's very rocky, but and it's sandy. And it didn't really stabilize the film until he got stationary behind a fallen log. Then he started walking, I think following Patty as closely as he could, but still keeping a distance until he ran out of film, having shot 24 feet or about 7.3 meters of the color 16 millimeter footage. Now, something to keep in mind is that the film doesn't show when Patterson and Gimlin first spotted the Bigfoot down by the creek, and it had walked away for a good distance before Patterson was able to start filming it. Right. So the film doesn't actually start when they first see it. It's just when Patterson could get away from his horse and start filming it. So yeah, because you're not riding around just no, he filming. Didn't, he didn't yeah. have the camera on as they came around the, the giant fallen uprooted tree, the giant stump and the, the root system which I think attests to everyone here, the horses, Patty, the two cowboys, they're startled. Everyone is surprised. And the other thing I think you need to keep in mind is that in the generation of a hoax, your thought is probably stage it, set it up, film it. It's probably pretty near the top of your film roll. It's Mm -hmm. probably pretty close to, it's not like I've barely got anything left And I'm going to catch this thing to think of in terms of hoaxing it. (laughs) It's a sophisticated, creative thought process as a film director to Blair Witch it, to be like, I'm going to make this look like it's completely random. That would have taken a lot of thought especially back in 1967 with a film camera. Well, if I said, like I I always say, if it's a hoax, it's a nice touch. It's a nice touch. Because it adds a little bit of, uh, you know, doubt to it. Now, Bob said that the creature definitely looked toward them as soon as they saw it, but it didn't initially react negatively. Now, the reasoning for this by authorities who know wild animal behavior is that the Bigfoot probably just saw or comprehended seeing three horses get spooked by its presence and not initially the humans in the scenario. Mm -hmm. The horses are not a threat. So at first it just kind of casually walks away. A moment later, when Gimlin said the creature looked toward him, which wasn't captured on film because Patterson was stumbling at first from having just fallen, it didn't react much because it might have still been comprehending it's just a horse and not a man on a horse. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until the Bigfoot saw the two men off their horses and standing on their feet that it looks back at them with either a mean or fearful glare, and then it picks up its pace 
as it heads east towards the safety of the woods and the hill. It might have also been the noise of the movie camera motor and then pointing that that made Patty worry and start to walk quicker. Yeah, you got to remember this thing's, you know, it's making some noise. Yeah. Something she's probably not familiar with because so few people have filmed one, if ever. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird scenario for everybody. Like, she's, what's going on? What are they, there's horses. Yeah, I may have seen a horse in the wild. But now there's two men, and I don't like them. Yeah. And I don't know what they're holding. The other guy looks like he's got a long stick that could kill me. You know, like there's there's a lot going on there. But she seems to react once she sees them on the ground as men and then picks up her pace a little. You know, she never really runs away, but she seems to quicken her pace a little bit. Now, this reminds me, I want to make a mention here because I, I brought this up, knowing one day it would come in handy and be relevant. It reminds me of the scene in Jeremiah Johnson where Robert Redford is Jeremiah and Will Gear as the experienced old mountain man named Bearclaw. They come upon a grizzly in a snowy clearing and of course, it's a grizzly. You don't want to spook it and you don't want to smell you. So Bearclaw tells Jeremiah to quietly get behind their horses to hide from the bear. And Jeremiah asks, well, won't the bear see our legs? And to which Bearclaw says, a bear doesn't know how many legs a horse has. <laughs> so it's this, or it's like Tom Waits in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, like, how high can a bird count? Yeah. And he's stealing his eggs. Yeah. You're wondering about the logic <laughs> and, and what, basically it's the idea of what animals can comprehend. And this is an important point how we view whatever Bigfoot is, if it exists, what is it? Is it more human or is it more ape-like? Because it has elements of both and it confuses people. And I think those who go to scrutinize it want to study it as one or the other, not maybe something that's a hybrid. And so this behavior, though, like I said, it's kind of like apex predator behavior, reaction from Patty. And self-preservation. Yeah, well, another case in point here. Now, this is from real life. This is from someone we both know who went on a photography safari in South Africa in an open-topped vehicle. Okay, so they're just taking pictures. They got, there's a little mount so you can rest your camera lens on, you know, telephoto lens. And they come upon a pride of lions. And our friend asked the guide, like, uh, yeah, won't the lions kind of see us? We're in an open top vehicle and, and attack us. Yeah, don't we look like a snack yeah, tray? Should, like this, I know you've probably <laughs> done this before, but is there any precautions we should take? And the answer was, not if everyone holds still, hold perfectly still, don't make a lot of noise, be careful about whispering, because in that case, the lions don't see a bunch of humans on a truck. They see a giant animal with big, fat, round legs. Yeah. I thought that was fascinating. If you start to move, then they will start to discern like, wait, that's a juicy human on top of a metal serving tray that's got wheels on it. Here's the thing I want to clarify <laughs> right. about that. Yeah. You better hope you know everyone you're with, because at that point, everyone's life is <laughs> predicated on the idea that no one is going to make a mistake. Right. Right. And then you turn, then you turn from a giant animal to, as we said, a snack tray on wheels. Yeah. <laughs> That's my point. Is that I think I'd rather just be alone in the car. So it's only up to me about right. being still. Yeah. Not you. <laughs> it's like, oh, that guy just started jumping up and down and waving his arms. What if someone sneezes? Well, you do it quietly because I think there's a point where they don't figure things out. And then there's a point where they're like, yeah, I am kind of peckish. So th I, I just, think that's fascinating, though. This is a weird little aside, but I just yesterday was reading a follow-up article about the Siegfried and Roy incident yeah. where Manticore, or Monticore, I can't remember the cat's name, and they said it gets mixed up, attacked the, one of the magicians. Yeah. And the handler was off stage, and he said he could see it coming because the iris is just, like, totally dilated, mm. and, the, and the cat's eyes, like, turned green. Ooh. 
That's that moment. That's the thing you don't want to see. Right. And that's the thing I think Roger and Bob were hoping not to see when Patty <laughs> glanced over her shoulder. No, at them, it's, yeah, know. it's interesting. But again, the reason I thought it was important to describe this is people say they're wondering, well, if Patty was a real Bigfoot, why didn't it get spooked and start running? And the answer might be initially is that it thought it wasn't a threat. It didn't think that you know, Roger and Bob were threats, just two horses, which aren't threatening. By the way, the people that are asking this question, they're clearly all experts on Bigfoot behavior. <laughs> well, nobody Why knows. didn't Patty run away? Yeah, exactly. We, we, we don't even know what that Patty is. That is my recurring theme. We don't know. If it is real, we don't know what it is. Yeah, but also, if what a, does if, she have yeah. to be afraid of? <laughs> exactly. She's outweighs everybody. Can you rip you from limb to limb? If you've heard our Chuck Zukowski episodes, maybe every once in a while that happens. Yeah. Now, here's the thinking. If it was just a man in a suit, that that little quickening of the pace was a nice touch of authenticity. That was a nice touch for authenticity. And here's <laughs> Kudos, the other thing. I say, yes. The other thing is if you look at the analysis of the film, there's evidence that she was taking very large steps, almost maybe up to 10 inches off the ground. Weird steps. Large, weird. The gait was really strange. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about this later in our analysis, but there's also indication that whatever it was, person in a costume mm -hmm. or actual creature, it kept going up the hill. Yeah. And after yeah. they lost sight of it. So we'll, we'll get to that later. Well, no, if it's a guy in a suit, that's a lot of strenuous, weird uh, activity covering a lot of ground quickly, which is also an indication that people say about Bigfoot. Hey, I Covers was, a lot of ground very quickly. I bump into stop signs when I put a costume on at <laughs> Halloween. Can you imagine going through <laughs> like, the woods, yeah. up a hill, over detritus from a, or a log jam <laughs> or downed trees yeah. or whatever? Plus, it's, you're not going to get the deposit back on the suit. Yeah. This is Ray Zista, and when I'm not making jokes about the paranormal on Twitter, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. While Patterson was filming, Patty was continuing to walk northeast out of the clearing and toward the edge of the forest, as we mentioned, and then heading upstream, turning directly east. Now, Patty would turn to look at the men several times, but at one point, Patty turns her head to the right, and according to Roger's account of the story, to look directly at him before slightly quickening her pace, giving us probably the most famous and iconic image of a Sasquatch, frame number 352 of the film. Yeah. Everybody knows that I'm sure you have that picture in your mind. Now, here's what's interesting is that, yes, Bob and Roger said it turned to look at them, but definitely it's looking at the camera. Yes, it is looking at the camera. What, I don't know who's lining up behind, you know what I'm saying? I don't know Well, who's they might have both up. thought she was looking at them, right. but the other thing is that Bob had said specifically in one of the uh, talks that he gave that we saw online, mm -hmm. he specifically said that that time that she turned and looked that is captured on the film, frame 352, specifically aligned with when he stepped off his horse. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to the point of what Forrest and I were just saying a few minutes ago about, oh, wait, that's not just a horse. Oh, yeah. wait, there's something else there. And on top of that, it looks kind of like me. Just, so there's... Yeah, it's it's a weird pale ape wearing a hat. Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of potential things going on there, if you believe any of this. Right. Right. And so that's interesting. Anyway, after she looks at either one of them, she then goes into a sparsely treed area before turning south, crossing the creek, and heading up a little hill where she might have stopped to look back down at the men before continuing on upstream to the east. Now, while this was happening and Patterson was filming, Bob Gimlin slowly rode his horse towards Patty, crossing the creek, keeping a bit to Patterson's left after he'd run up ahead. Now, after getting as close as to within 60 or 90 feet of Patty, Bob got off the horse with his rifle in his hand in case she decided to attack Roger, but he didn't point his rifle at her. 
Roger guessed he himself got as close as 25 feet or 7.6 meters away from Patty. And after his horse reared up and fell, it took him about 20 seconds to get out from the saddle, get his horse under control, move around to the other side of his horse to get the camera from the saddlebag before he could start running toward Patty while filming. And an important note, not too long after that, his horse got up and ran away, Mm -hmm. for the record. Patterson yelled at Gimlin saying, cover me, meaning to get the rifle out and ready to shoot in case he got attacked. But both men had agreed beforehand that they wouldn't shoot a Bigfoot under any circumstances unless it was to protect themselves or each other. Patty continuously walks away from the men, and before Patterson could start running after her, she was about 120 feet away. Now, the footage, almost 60 seconds long, if it was shot at 16 frames per second, is very shaky at the beginning because all the commotion, the running, stumbling on uneven ground, until Patterson got to within about 80 feet away from Patty, or 24 meters, where he was able to steady himself more by getting on his knees. Right about then, around frame 264, according to Grover Krantz's mapping out of the incident, Patty begins to turn her head to the right, according to Bigfoot research expert Daniel Perez. We're not sure if this is a discrepancy with Patty turning to look at the men in the famous frame 352, but according to Patterson, when Patty turned her head during the steadier middle portion of the PGF, or the Patterson-Gimlin film, he described Patty's look at him to Bigfoot researcher John Green as an expression of, quote, contempt and disgust. You know (laughs) how it is when the umpire tells you one more word and you're out of the game. That's the way it felt. Yeah, you know what they meant by out of the game. Yeah. I'm, I'm coming over there, fella. Yeah. Yeah. You better not do anything to spook me. Yeah. yeah. Patterson thought Patty had turned her head a total of three times, but the first two times were when he wasn't filming yet, either the moment they were still on horseback or when running and stumbling after being dismounted and scrambling to start filming. Now, after this last glance from Patty, she disappears behind a small copse of trees. I knew you'd work that in. <laughs> for about 14 <laughs> seconds. Mm-hmm. I think those trees are in the foreground if you look at the 3D model that was made, meaning trees that are between Patty and Patterson on the sandbar. Patterson moves 10 feet to get a better shooting angle. Then during the film's final 15 seconds, she reappears briefly before walking out of sight at around 265 feet away from them. And then the camera runs out of film for that role. The whole encounter lasted less than two minutes. Think about how fast this is happening for them. The shock of it, how quickly everything's going. And then for those two minutes, those two minutes of their lives, they had to talk about for the rest of their lives. And Mm -hmm. Roger died just a few years later in 1972. Bob is still talking about it. We're going to see him next weekend. Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. I know. know, Two minutes of your life, just defining everything. And, And for Bob, he's a rancher. He's been ranching all this time. Yeah. He never expected to have spent his whole life talking about this one weekend trip he took with a friend a long time ago to talk about and maybe film some footage talking about Bigfoot or trying to find some tracks. Well, that's why he stopped for a long time. It's kind of like that moment, again, we grew up with this stuff. We grew up with this film and and seeing it and, and, and specials and shows about it. Never would we think we would grow up and be older dudes and going to see him. I never did. No. So that's kind of wild. It's kind of like us watching sightings and, gee, I wonder if I'll ever talk to that family. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) you will. The Pikmin family about the You don't know it, but you will. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to keep in mind here about talking about film and seeing stuff years later, there is what we can see on the film, which is pretty good. Like I said, that's amazing. And it's astounding that it's that good that we, good enough that it can be analyzed this closely. But the descriptions that the men have, remember, when you see things, that's pretty high def. (laughs) You're seeing it with your own eyes. 
So what they saw is burned into their memories as being crystal clear sharp. They're not recounting the film. They're recounting their own experience, what they saw. And what the men saw with their own eyes fit the general description of Bigfoot that Patterson had been hearing about from all these witnesses. You know, an ape-like figure, large and thick torso, bipedal or walking upright on two legs, hairy but not shaggy with black, dark, or reddish-brown, or silvery-brown hair all over most of its body. Oh, you know, when I was watching a cable lecture, I was house-sitting for Scott, and I saw an episode of Killing Bigfoot. I, oh, yes. I had never seen that before, and, and yes, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Well, I saw PGF analyst and Bigfoot researcher M.K. Davis on the show Killing Bigfoot, and he says that he thinks the authentic hair samples that he's seen the hair is more silvery and a little translucent, unlike other animal hair from like a bear or a horse. It made me think of the silverback gorilla. Oh, yeah. Well, here's some features that Patty had that you don't usually find on, on gorillas. On gorillas. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. She had large, pendulous, hairy breasts, which right. is not a typical part of the description of Bigfoot's but there do appear to be females of whatever species this thing is, if you believe they exist at mm -hmm. all. And there have been a few reports of people encountering them. The female orang pendak of Indonesia that a hunter refused to shoot because it seemed too human. And William Rowe's encounter in 1955 during a hunting trip where he also refused to shoot a female Bigfoot, also with large breasts, because she seemed human. You know, Roger Patterson, I think, interviewed him, or that story is recounted in one of the, the two long-playing LP discs, discs, I mean vinyl for you kids. Records. <laughs> uh, Old-fashioned records, if you joined his club. We gotta get these. Yeah. I'm looking for them. I can't find them anywhere. Yeah, hey, anybody out there that has them, let us know. Yeah, we just love a recording. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, after Patty disappeared from sight out into the trees, Gimlin got back on his horse and started to cautiously follow the path of the creature for a ways until Patterson shouted at him to return, which Gimlin did. You know, Patterson was starting to get worried that he'd now be alone on foot without his horse. See, his horse, after he got the camera out of it, got up and ran away. And it ran away with Roger's rifle still in the scabbard on the horse where it should have been. And Roger had concerns, because I don't know if you remember us talking about this, but part of the reason that they went there in the first place was because there had been reporting of tracks in the area. Different size tracks. Different size tracks, and the tracks uh, were three different sizes. So the first thing that Roger thought after his horse was gone and his gun was gone and Patty was also out of sight was that she might not be alone. Yeah. And he didn't particularly want to be sitting there by himself in the creek bed with an injured foot and nothing more than a camera to protect himself while Bob wandered off after Patty. Right. Well, if he'd reloaded, it might be great footage of one running towards you. And then, yeah. that's, and then, and then that's all you see. Yeah. yeah. So they went and found the two horses that had run off. They'd gone downstream of the initial encounter when they got spooked. And Roger loaded the movie camera with a second roll of film. And as they followed Patty's tracks, they began to film them. Yes. They tracked her from between one to three miles and found scuff marks in the gravel and creek bed which they thought may be an indication that Patty started running once she was out of view by the pair. Some distance away, they discovered a rock that had a wet footprint on it, and from that rock, the creature's path led up into the mountains where they lost her trail because of the heavy undergrowth of brush. Again, there's ways to break this down. If Bob is not in on it, Bob Gimlin, and Patterson is hoaxing him and he just wants a credible witness to his hoax, 
the guy in the suit took off into the brush where they couldn't even follow. And also ran way down the river and left a wet footprint on a rock. Yeah, like there was like a half footprint. He's really yeah. committed to this role. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, you're, yeah, you've probably ruined the suit. And, you know, that's expensive. It was expensive back then. Yeah. So that's a little bit of it. Then you, if you believe that, then you have to believe that Bob Gimlin was also in on it because he's then now lying about this part too. So both the guys, Patterson and Gimlin, then went back three miles south to their campsite and grabbed their plaster casting supplies, and they returned to Patty's path at the film site along the sandbar. Now, something we, we heard in the interview with Bob is that they knew at this time of year, it gets dark real quick. As soon as that sun sets down behind the hills and the trees, it gets very dark, and they didn't have a lot of time to work with. So they're, they're rushing. Imagine this. We got to do something with that film now. But one good thing about the soil where they were in that part of the creek is that it has a lot of blue, gray, sandy clay, which makes great footprints. And so they were able to make really good plaster casts of the best footprint of the right and left footprints that they found. So they took one of each, which is a good yes, thing. Yes, they were not side by side. It was the best version of the left and the best version of the right. Yeah, yeah. They also took more movie footage of the prints with the second roll of film and measured the footprint dimensions and step lengths of the tracks. The footprints themselves measured 14 and a half inches long. Uh, that'd be about 36.8 centimeters by six inches wide or 15.2 centimeters. And Bob, this was confirmed at least in his interview, to test how heavy a figure would have to be to make those prints and see how deep they would have to be to imprint themselves into that sandy clay soil, Bob jumped off a stump into the soil with one foot with his cowboy boot to see how deep of a print he could make. And the creature's prints were still deeper. Then Patterson shot this experiment on film in the second roll, along with their plaster casting and a horse's hoof prints next to the creature's footprint. And I think, didn't he say in his interview that his horse was 1,200 pounds, distributing weight on four feet? So he, <laughs> yeah, he made it, he surmised that there were several hundred pounds on the horse's front feet alone. Yeah. And those weren't making the same depth of impression that Patty's footprints were. There's one other thing that I want to mention that we took from the YouTube video of Bob talking about the incident mm -hmm. that uh, I want to say is important here. Because I, I gathered from his statement that he had been criticized about the fact that they didn't have the plaster with them or whatever they were using to make the castings. Oh, in that moment, they, they had, had to, to ride, ride back yeah, to they had the to, camp. Yeah, yeah, they went to recover the horses. Then they had to go get the materials and then come back and do the tracking. Mm -hmm. And he said in the talk that we watched, the reason they didn't have that stuff with them is because they'd been out there a long time. I can quote him as saying, I was completely exhausted. Mm -hmm. And he said, and I'm sure Roger was too, because they've been riding around, shooting. I don't know if you know what a day like that's like in the wilderness, let alone just hiking or even just playing or hanging yeah. out in the woods. Yeah. It can be very tiring. And then on top of that, they were filming and camping and, you know, getting up and going on horseback rides yeah, well, and, and, and back and forth. Yeah, at night they were in the truck riding yeah. the logging roads, hoping to Looking. catch a nighttime encounter. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they're doing all this work. So that was his explanation for why they didn't have the ability to pour any molds right then when they came across the well, track. It's kind of funny because you're out for that specific purpose and days go by. And also keep in mind, Roger had been on other what he called pre-expeditions, testing stuff in the area. And he'd seen some prints or he'd heard stories, but he never got any great evidence on his own. This hasn't been paying off for a long time. So you're not expecting it. You're thinking in the back of your mind, like, we'll never get anything good. But, I, you know, might as well try. And then you do. And then you're totally shocked and unprepared. 
Yeah. You just weren't, you know, they didn't expect going out. If you believe them, they were not expecting to round a massive tree stump and actually see one. That's the case. When you think about it, it's used for comedic purposes and dramas where you watch a movie or a television or whatever, and, or you read about people. I guess it's a human trait. You get all geared up for something. You're ready. I'm, you're going to, I'm going to go out and I'm going to capture this thing or do this thing or whatever. And then the moment comes and you whiff it. <laughs> and it's, just, oh, yeah. it's just part of being a human being. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it takes experience to get good at being ready to do something on the fly. Well, a lot of times, as you saw in that series, Hellier, you try and you try and it, it's just out of reach. It's always just out of reach. You never quite get there. But occasionally you'll see something amazing. And a lot of times, yeah, you just weren't ready. Well, case in point, you know, not to get too far off the path here, but when we went to the Sally house, I didn't even take our digital recorder. Yeah, I had to remind you to go get it. I went back to get it. (laughs) Right. Because my son had to go to the bathroom at the hotel and he refused to come in the house. So (laughs) then I went, you know what? I should get this and I'll go back and take it there. And I was not taking the house seriously enough. And yeah, well, you weren't expecting to get anything because this rarely ever happens. Yeah. So anyway, but that's one of the reasons that this case is unique is that they did get something. And of course, now the next pressing thing was for them to get the film developed. But keep this in mind. This isn't a digital camera, which most everyone is familiar with nowadays. You don't immediately see what you photographed and the film needs to be processed first and then projected to see a large enough image. Also, a lot can happen to screw up capturing a good image on film. For those of you who've never operated a manual camera, you know, not everything's automatic. The unexposed film could be fogged or prematurely exposed to sunlight. It could be out of focus as the camera was not automatic. I don't believe this. Well, it certainly didn't have autofocus. No. I actually own a Bell & Howell uh, Filmo, which is a 16 millimeter wind-up camera. I think you may have seen one uh, taped to Steve McQueen's helmet. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were used sometimes, I believe, as uh, gun cameras in World War II. Very rugged, durable camera, turret lens. But I don't believe it has a light meter on it, so you have to do that guesstimation. You know, bright sun, F-22, F-16, that older photographers know how to do. So a lot could be screwed up. And the iris of the lens could be at the wrong f-stop, like I said, and just not at the right exposure. So... It's really easy to goof this up. These guys are very anxious. They don't know if they captured anything. And as they say, they both weren't sure that they'd captured anything good. And Bob Gimlin is quoted as saying, we weren't sure from Roger stumbling and falling down on the sandbar and getting up and running. Well, we didn't even have an idea that we had anything on the film at that time. In fact, it was doubtful that we did have anything. End quote. Imagine how this would feel if this is not a hoax, if this story is not a hoax, if these guys really saw something that they couldn't explain. And they went through this moment as they described stumbling across this creature, having it react to them, falling, the horse falling down, running, grabbing the camera, trying to film it while you're running and also falling down. And now the thing is gone, you know, up the river and in the woods, it's gone. And that was your moment. For them, you have to be thinking, that was it. We missed it. That was yeah, it. Yeah. That was the chance we had. We'll probably never see another one as long as we live, and we don't even know if we got it on film. <laughs> right, right. And That's a horrible feeling, I would imagine. No, I know. And So they had plans that they were going to return later and try and get some, uh, you know, some more evidence or maybe hopefully even see Patty again. But for right now, the most important thing to do, got to get that film to a safe place to be processed. To that end, they decided to send the film immediately for processing to Patterson's brother-in-law, Al Diatley, who lived in Yakima, and he could tell them if they got anything. If the footage was good, then they could pack up and leave for home. If not, then they would stay and keep searching for another encounter to film. 
Chris Murphy said in his book that Patterson likely had two rolls of film he needed processed by Diatley because he'd have shot the second roll of the tracks and plaster casting. The closest film lab that could process Kodachrome 2, the 16-millimeter film Roger used, was in Seattle, Washington. Seattle is 142 miles away from Yakima on I-90, or about 2 hours and 17 minutes. So Al Diatli could have plenty of time to get to Seattle, have the film processed, and return to Yakima within 8 hours. Yeah, that's the proponents of their story say it's possible, whereas... The detractors say, not enough time. Yeah, the reason to pay attention to the timing here is that the question of being able to process the film in time, as Roger has claimed, is used by skeptics to claim that perhaps the film was taken possibly much earlier as part of a hoax, having everything set up and ready to go, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So this is where people, the skeptics are coming in, they're getting all dateline on it. <laughs> well, that's why no we are way. too. could have gone and come back. And and so it's just something yeah. to know. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'm, I sound like I'm making fun of the skeptics, but we're going to look at everything yeah. that, that they think as well. No, so. we should. That's what yeah. we try to always do. Anyway, according to author Chris Murphy, what likely happened is that Patterson and Gimlin drove further south down to Eureka, California, California, where Patterson phoned Diatley and gave him a heads up that the film was going to be shipped to him and that he should get it processed right away. In a following interview, Patterson told a newspaper reporter that he had airmailed the film from Eureka, but Bob Gimlin remembers going to an actual airport to ship the film, and he actually confirmed that in the mm-hmm. in the uh, interview. It's not really an interview. It's him at a podium talking about Yeah, he's giving a that, talk. That we watched uh, just today. Now, with the next day being Saturday and the post office possibly being closed or unable to deliver the film, this might be why Patterson and Gimlin had to go to either McKinleyville Airport or possibly Murray Field in Arcata, California, and both would have had air service to Yakima. So it's entirely possible the film could have been shipped in time to arrive in Yakima on Saturday, October 21st. Now, at some point while all this was going on along the way, the guy stopped off in Willow Creek between approximately 6 and 6.30 p.m. to meet up with their friend, Al Hodgson. Now, you guys might remember him. He was the owner of the Willow Creek Variety Store from whom Patterson first heard about the sightings in Bluff Creek, those sightings being the multiple sets of footprints that Mm -hmm. we were referring to a few minutes ago. Now, if you Google map it, Willow Creek is about 38 miles south of Bluff Creek by Highway 96. But to get from their campsite to the 1967 roadhead and then down south to Willow Creek is a little over 54 miles. The timing here is also important because it's used by skeptics to claim that there wasn't enough time for Patterson and Gimlin to accomplish all that they said they did in the time frame. Since it was after 6, the store was closed, so they phoned Hodgson at home and got him to come over to the store with some other friends, Sly McCoy, greatest name ever, being one of them. (laughs) Yeah. Another Chris Murphy source, the Bigfoot Film Journal, cites they stopped at the Lower Trinity Ranger Station, also just north of Willow Creek, to meet with their friends and relay the details. Yeah, that might be a discrepancy, but either way, if they're at the Ranger Station, this might be an important detail because you could assume that maybe they made a report to the Rangers. Right. And that this action may be an attempt to legitimize the sighting or establish some kind of further official record. But proponents might say that, you know, if it was a hoax, why would Patterson want more official scrutiny? And detractors might say it's a way to, like, tie them in. Like, no, we're you can go both ways on that. That's my point about this. So Patterson and Gimlin then told their friends all about the encounter, wherever they were, I think they were at the store, 
and Patterson showed them the bent stirrup from his saddle where he fell. Remember that? Yeah. I think it told, mostly collapsed onto his foot. So right. he, he had that piece. That's a little bit of proof or evidence he brought with them that something happened. And around 9.30 p.m., Patterson telephoned a reporter for the Times Standard newspaper in Eureka and related all the details of the event. The next day, Saturday, October 21st, the paper ran a front page article titled, Mrs. Bigfoot is filmed. Ah. Mrs. Bigfoot. Mrs. Bigfoot. <laughs> See, there might have been a Mr. Bigfoot. Yeah. Yes. Well, after this reporting to the reporter was done, Patterson and Gimlin headed back to their campsite where there was a full moon, but it started sprinkling more and more, and by about 3 to 4 a.m., there was a really heavy rain. Gimlin had asked Al Hodgson for some cardboard boxes that he used at the store to cover the Bigfoot tracks before they got washed away, because he's forthing, like, well, we got to preserve this stuff. Guys are going to show up now. So, he, you know, he dumped out the produce or whatever, gave him these boxes. And Patterson, it's kind of funny. You can see kind of the guy he was or whatever. He just said, no, nah, it'll be fine. It's not going to rain. It's not going to rain. But he thought it wasn't going to rain very hard anyway. So he really wasn't interested in getting up from his tent in the middle of the night. <laughs> so I guess Bob had a hard time getting him up. But Gimlin thought it was going to downpour, and it did. It rained so hard, the boxes he'd gotten from Hodgson were soggy messes. So he went around, and this is smart. He covered the tracks with big pieces of bark. And it's a good thing he did because they would have been degraded before the team got there. Yeah, and I guess he, and again, we heard him talking about this on the on the one video. He, he went and was peeling the bark off of a tree there. Mm -hmm. Very clever. And this goes back to what we were saying about him. He's good in the woods. He's a yeah, cowboy. Yeah, right. He figures things out. <laughs> the boxes aren't going to work. Yeah. I know these tracks because he's also a tracker. I know these tracks are going to go away. They're going to be degraded. And I've got to cover them because I also know it's going to rain like crazy. Yeah. So he goes out and he goes and peels off some bark and covers up the tracks. And thank God he did because if he didn't, that evidence wouldn't be part of the story either. Right, right. And here's another component of that. If the whole thing was a setup and it was a hoax and it was primarily Roger in the driver's seat on it, you'd think Roger would be interested in preserving the tracks he had hoaxed. Just a thought that's yeah, occurring to me. sure. You know. Right. Anyway, before heading back, Patterson had asked Al Hodgson to call Don Abbott of the British Columbia Provincial Museum the archaeologist who was called down to Bluff Creek before. And no one is sure why Patterson didn't call Abbott himself, but Hodgson relayed all the details of the encounter and asked Abbott to come down to the film site and to bring along tracking dogs that were to be provided by a man named John Green. Right, right. He's another researcher of, of great note. But dogs might be helpful because they can smell where she went. And trust me, there's a smell. Yeah. <laughs> so he's trying to get this all together. And Don Abbott is a respectable scientist from the museum. So he wants him involved. And, and he is going to be open to this. You know, and people might wonder why Patterson would have contacted Don Abbott, you know, a scientist so far away in British Columbia, Canada, to come down to investigate when a professional closer to the site could have gotten there faster. But keep in mind, very, very few scientists then and now and probably forever, would even give any thought at all to such a ridiculous assertion as Bigfoot evidence. You're right. Yeah, well, okay, so like... You gotta go where you, wherever you need to go. Yeah, to who's your... gonna take a look at it? But Abbott had already shown interest in Bigfoot, as people generally from British Columbia were more aware and more comfortable with Sasquatch sightings. Not comfortable, because you don't... <laughs> You don't really want to see one. It's part of their local lore and culture. So they weren't so hung up about it as Americans. And remember, Abbott had already traveled down to Bluff Creek, about 700 miles by car, 
to investigate the earlier Blue Creek Mountain Road footprint. So Abbott was seen as the best bet to take this evidence seriously. And Grover Krantz, one of the few evolutionary anthropologists and primatologists to take Bigfoot seriously, said of Abbott, quote, the only scientist of any stature to have demonstrated any serious interest in the Bigfoot subject, end quote. Aside from Grover, he was, he got ridiculed too. They all do. So you're taking a big risk if you even just say you're mildly interested. We, however, do not care about ridicule. <laughs> we have no degrees. Yeah, we have no uh, scientific peers to worry about, uh, you know, calling us out, just people on Twitter and, and <laughs> emails and whatever social media. Yes. yes. Calling us ridiculous, but that's fine. Don Abbott first declined the offer, saying he would want to wait to see the film first, because granted, remember, he'd already been down there and the road crew had graded them over. He's like, yeah, it's a long way. So yeah. let's just see the film first. Then I'll let you know if I'm really, you know, if it's worth my time. Now, he did end up calling John Green, which is nice of him, asking for help with getting the tracking dogs. But Green was unable to arrange for any. And Abbott was interested in seeing the PGF because he also called Al Diatley and requested that the film be brought to the University of British Columbia so it could be viewed by scientists there. Diatley promised that he'd tell Patterson about the request. So he's expressing some interest. He just wants to see the film first. Now, the fact that Patterson had requested that Don Abbott go down to the event site the same day as the event, or any scientist or researcher like John Green and tracking dogs, is used by proponents of the film like Grover Krantz as something a hoaxer wouldn't take a chance on, as we were saying. You know, why risk having them discover it's a hoax fairly easily? Especially yeah. experts. Dogs are great and pretty smart and all, but I don't think you can get them to participate in a conspiracy. <laughs> well, they're not going to find anything. Again, the skeptics would say, it's like, well, that's just part of his grand plan. Make it look authentic. It's like, well, look, I, I contacted the scientists and the University of British Columbia, and I got all these people involved because I was serious about this, but it's still part of a ruse. But again, you're taking a little bit of a risk for them to really find out what you're doing. Because right. if anyone's going to sniff this out, it's going to be them right away. Well, by about 4 a.m., the rain had gotten so heavy, they were afraid of a mudslide or landslide onto Bluff Creek Road. So they packed up and left for Yakima at that time, now, even though they wanted to stay and explore for more evidence. And they were right, as there was a mudslide onto the lower Bluff Creek Road, so they had to take the steep Onion Mountain Road. This road is no longer even accessible, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah I, was, yeah. I looked that up. Their mm. truck slipped off the road, and they had to recover it with a front-end loader they unofficially borrowed. <laughs> Maybe they hotwired it, yeah. <laughs> I don't even think you have. I think you just hit a start button on these mm. on back then. Mm -hmm. Altogether, it was around a 580-mile drive beginning with a very difficult and harrowing twisty drive through high and narrow muddy bad road and towing three horses. With all that, the estimate is that it would have taken 13 to 14 hours to get home to Yakima. Ugh, yeah. yeah. Now, John Green left an urgent message with well-known Sasquatch researcher Renee DeHinden in San Francisco to contact Al Hodgson in Willow Creek about the encounter. DeHinden got the lowdown from Hodgson and then immediately traveled to Willow Creek, which is, again, about 38 miles south of Bluff Creek. DeHinden got there quickly, arriving about noon on Saturday, October 21st, 1967. He went to Hodgson's Willow Creek Variety Store, where he met up with fellow Bigfoot researcher Jim McLaren. 
wouldn't it have been fun to have been at that store just shopping for knickknacks when DeHinden arrived and those two were talking <laughs> shop about Bigfoot? No, I just like, you imagine us, like we're just, you know, maybe we're on a road trip and we're, we're getting some snacks or whatever. And it's like, these guys are like, what about the Bigfoot footage? So-and-so's coming. It's like, I'm going to hang out for a bit more, well, longer here. It sounds exciting. Well, no. The, you know, and, and we get weird looks every time we have lunch <laughs> with the stuff we're, we're talking, talking about. Yeah, the books on the table. And, yeah. It's, but imagine, though, that's an exciting moment at the store where these guys are excited excitedly talking about this new revolutionary footage they haven't seen yet, but it sounds certainly everyone talking about it is very excited. So I just imagine, yeah, imagine us just being there at that moment when, you know, something this groundbreaking is happening. Or, you know, you're at the crux of a very famous hoax. Yeah. You can say you, you can at least say you've been there. Well, again, and it's a weird thing to draw a parallel to, but it, it was part of going back to the Sally House when we had the EVP. And we decided not to air it until October, even Mm -hmm. though it had happened in July. That was a weird feeling for me. Oh, sitting on it? Yeah, sitting on it. And then like, what is it? And what? It's just hard to describe being in that position. When you gathered some evidence that you think is convincing and yeah and then you get a you get you get a letter or comment from somebody it's like why did you guys hype that for six hours it was nothing yeah (laughs) i get that yeah unlike this film here what that recording was is a very small part of the entire experience when we do the story about the sally house it's the history of the house it's the people that went there this record it's not a build-up we never meant it to be a huge build-up like this film is like we got bigfoot footage stay tuned for the next six hours while we hype it up and then you see it it's like it's a guy in a suit come on with the recording it's like that was just an element of that whole story i'm sorry you got the impression that that was the big showdown. No the apologies. Big showcase. We don't apologize right. anymore on this show. <laughs> right. But here, here's yeah. something I disagree with you just said yeah, yeah. in comparing it to the film. You said, unlike the film, mm-hmm. I conversely, I do believe the film is a small part of the equation. Oh, the that's film true. is yeah. the only part you can study. That's true. There is no way that Bob, you know, mm-hmm. Rogers passed away. Mm-hmm. There's no way that Bob, I believe this, and again, based on the Sally experience, he will never be able to properly convey what that experience felt like, if it was a real experience. Oh, He'll yeah, never be yeah. able. He can talk for 50 years, and you as a listener, and this is includes me, yeah. who wants to believe him. I mean, I'll just go ahead and say right, that's where my confirmation right. bias is. I find Bob to be a very honest and genuine person based on what I've already seen of him talking, and mm-hmm. I can't wait to meet him next weekend. Mm-hmm. But by the time this show comes out, that will be a prior weekend, just... Yeah, it's a little me. weird, yeah, but we're, we're, we're trying to get We're ahead. actually <laughs> ahead for the first time in four years. Yeah. But the point is just that He'll never be able to convey what that actually felt like as much as he will try, and even the most earnest believer will never be able to understand it. The only way to know what a personal experience is like is to have been there. Remember, these guys are seeing it with their own eyes, not that far away. And I've often thought about this. What would it feel like to see something that remarkable, that goblin in the garden, (laughs) or whatever weird cryptid you see with your own eyes that just as out of your, like I said, the visual repertoire of of things that should be possible, and you see it, how do you even process that? What is that feeling like? Your feeling hearing the recording was, of course, different from mine. Mine was more like we got Bigfoot footage. I heard that recording. It's like, man, we got something. Yeah. I don't know what this is, but we got to get this to somebody. Right. And that's a feeling that I'm glad you bring that up. And I want to talk about that more when we get to... uh when we get to the point where we're talking about the actions that the guys took. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, because we're I can relate that. to that as well. Yeah, sure. Certainly. I mean, I was freaked out, but I was also like, we have to share this with people. Right, right. But you had an added feeling that it was personal. Yes. Slightly in the way that Bob and Roger did, in that the look they got from this was like, 
towards the end. Yeah, leave me alone. That's enough. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's enough. Don't approach. Yeah. So that's why Bob was very cautious about riding up on it with his horse, but he did want to continue. So these gentlemen are standing around the store talking about these experts, are standing around the store talking about Bigfoot. Patterson is about 26 miles north of where they're at in Willow Creek, and he calls them from the town of Orleans, California. And he told DeHinden about the encounter and how they had to leave the incident site because of the heavy rains. Now, after the phone call, DeHinden and McLaren left for Yakima because they wanted to go and see the film at Al Diatley's house where Patterson had sent it. And John Green was also on his way there. So this next sequence is a little bit controversial because this is also something that is is heavily scrutinized as being impossible to some and possible by others. Diatley had received the film that morning, Saturday, October 21st, overnighted, and had managed to get it processed that same day. Now, Patterson and Gimlin arrived back home near Yakima either late that Saturday night or early Sunday morning. And for some reason, Patterson wasn't able to tell Diatley that now there was no rush in getting the film processed. Because remember, if the film was good, if they'd captured something, they could go home now. Yeah. If Diatley had it processed and the film was screwed up, they would stay there continuing to look for evidence of Patty. Right. Get another sighting. So that was their plan. Look, look, if it's good, this is pretty good. It's not going to get any better than this. So let's just pack up and go home and deal with the film. If it got ruined or you just didn't capture it, then we know she's here. So it's a good chance that maybe we'll see her again. Yeah. So we should hang around. So and that's now the reason. They're on their way home anyway because of the rain. And exactly. that's the point. It's exactly. Like, the trip's It's not over. as big a rush. Well, we need to look at it, yeah, but you right. know, it's not a four alarm fire because we're on our way back anyway. Yeah, they wouldn't yeah. be hanging around waiting there for word. They yeah. had to head back anyway. But as we'll see coming up here, it might have been better for the story and for Patterson and Gimlin if they had waited to process the film. That's going to wrap it up for part one of our series on the Patterson-Gimlin film. We'll be back next week with part two. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Danielle Cox. And I give permission to astonishing legends galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Mike. E-K-I-M-E-L-L-E-S-S-A. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>